Show me a good night. It came from Cleveland, Ohio. A land of strange rituals. The savage horrors of fearsome mutated beasts. Back from the dead. Kept alive by experimental science. Science runs amok when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Cut the power! Now at last, the real shocking story can be told. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. A nightmare combination of shock and terror, and you're invited. A foolish unto Something evil. This is Vincent Price speaking from the Cleveland Museum of Art. Not far away is all the bustle of a modern American city. Not recommended for impressionable children. 8,000 miles from Hollywood to prove you two of a friendship will survive anything, Vincent Price himself. Greats of horror movies, you have something else in common, haven't you? Yes, we do, Eamon. You know, uh, it's a very peculiar thing. I don't know whether it's supernatural or just perhaps ecological, but we uh, share the same birthday, May 27th. A few years apart, of course. <laughs> uh, as Chris will always remind me. <laughs> yes. But you know, um, we once celebrated our birthdays together in the Chamber of Horrors at Madame Tussauds. <laughs> it was a lovely party. <laughs> Vincent, <laughs> how, how would you rate Christopher's success? Well, I tell you, maybe it could best be illustrated by a story that actually happened to me the other day. I go on a lecture tour every year all around the United States, and I got on a plane, fell asleep immediately to avoid fear, and uh, a man came and shook me and woke me up and said, Hey, you're Boris Karloff, aren't you? <laughs> And I looked at him and said, no, uh, Boris has passed on. He said, he has? He said, well, then you're Christopher Lee, aren't you? And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, then who the hell are you? <laughs> and he went and sat down and never bothered to ask. <laughs> but you know, quite seriously, I, I really welcome this opportunity to be here, Chris, and to, to pay a tribute to a man who has made a magnificent contribution to a very classic genre of the cinematic art the horror film, to a warm and wonderful human being and a master of his craft. What's your name? <laughs> well, happy Friday and happy birthday to Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and Vincent Price. Uh, welcome to It Came From Cleveland. Started the show a little differently there tonight. And who knew... Um, uh, well, I learned a lot about Vincent Price and, uh, f and his love for fine arts, and that's where I found him talking about the Cleveland Museum of Art, so <laughs> that's where I got my little, our little stinger for this tonight. This is Vincent Price speaking from the Cleveland Museum of Art. Not far away is all the bustle of a modern American city. Yeah, and my house. So, uh, <laughs> welcome to the show. Uh, this is a very exciting one for us all uh, to talk about this trio of friends and horror movie legends. Uh, and of course, I know Michelle is especially excited about tonight's proceedings, aren't you? 
Oh, am I ever? These are my favorite people in the, you know, my favorite actors in the world. Mm-hmm. Just, just because of their, 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 their the, the beauty of the people themselves and their careers and all the joy they have brought me over the years. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'll tell you what, I thought I knew a lot about these guys, but I learned so much in preparation for this show. And I, I won't even remember half of it to, to mention tonight. Uh, but uh, but now Joe Santoris is with us. And of course, Joe's got his love of the uh, precursor, the, the uh, inspiration, perhaps, to the Twilight Zone, One Step Beyond. Uh, you tracked down an episode of that for us to talk about tonight, starring... One and only Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee, yes. And so, the episode is called The Sorcerer. It is a magnificent uh, piece of television history. It is absolutely a stunning episode. And that's, uh, uh, was, did you say that was one of his first jobs? Is it, it was his first television appearance. First television appearance. Incredible. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, Miles, obviously, uh, being married to Michelle, is no stranger to these three fellas. And... You uh, also have a certain affinity for uh, the two British members of the, this uh, 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 these three friends, um, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, because uh, they actually uh, did some really cool stuff during World War II, and they were in the Star, War- Star Wars franchise. Yeah, yeah, they got, uh, yes. <laughs> you <nailed> All that. <laughs> So, and we're going to be learning about that as as the show rolls on. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. And of course, I'm sorry, Michelle, I glossed over. Uh, you, of course, picked out three trailers for us, um, uh, re- all related to the these guys. And you are going to be talking about a film that stars all three of them. Correct? Yes, yes. The three trailers all have something in common. They either star Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing's, or Christopher Lee and uh, Vincent Price. Or one of them has all three of them in it. And, of course, the movie I'm talking about has all three of them in it. It was like the last collaborative effort that they did before, you know, uh, you know, stuff started happening. You know, Peter Cushing Mm -hmm. died shortly there and then then Vincent Price followed him. So, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. I have got some really cool stuff uh, for for everybody. So um, why is Francie putting Jerry? Are you there? Hello. Hello. Yes, we're here. Um, But, um, uh, yeah, so, uh, well, I want to start, I, I was so scatterbrained with this because, well, first of all, the temperature took a dip here and the barometric pressure is all off. So my sinuses are a wreck. So staying focused was a little difficult, but I did find some really interesting clips and, um, I want to start with, uh, I'm going to just kind of go back and forth from all three of them, but I do have a lot of Vincent Price uh, that I'm uh, from his days in radio, and I think maybe we we could start with that. Um, I I had the notion of actually sharing a full episode of an old time radio show uh, on the air, but I'm not going to do that because there's so much to talk about, and uh, I would rather give short three short clips of. You know, three different radio appearances from Vincent Price than do one, you know, full episode. I, I'd, I'd, I'd hope that if you guys like what you hear from the clips that I've selected, you'll seek out the the radio shows, go to the Internet Archive and download them for free. Um, you know, listen to them like a podcast. So, um, but this uh, this is one of my favorite all-time favorites. Um, Joe, you're familiar with the uh, 
uh, the old time radio show Suspense, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Vincent Price had a lot. Uh, he did a lot on that uh, uh, on yeah. Suspense, and th- he this one episode is considered to be probably one of the scariest old time radio shows ever. And I I will agree. I it usually goes on our Halloween rotation. Um, and it's called Three Skeleton Key. And uh, it is about three guys in a lighthouse on a place called Skeleton Key. And they're, uh, while they're, you know, they're out there, they're all by themselves, they're isolated from anything. Um, and uh, they get a visit from a ghost ship. <laughs> And on the ghost ship um, are a bunch of ravenous rats looking to eat anything in their wake. Uh, and the ship rolls up, uh, you know, the, and, um, and the rats swim out to land. And the only land around is, is the this key where the lighthouse is. And they're looking for food and the food happens to be Vincent Price and his cohorts Um, and any food that they might have in there. Uh, And and essentially what happens is the rats actually completely um, climb on top of, there are so many, they climb on top of one another until they are at the top of the lighthouse. And the guys are trying to stay awake in shifts and uh, Vincent Price got the first shift and of the rats, and he does such an excellent job. And I just want to play a, a little more than a minute of, of the horror of a lighthouse being engulfed in disgusting, sickly, uh, ravenous rats. It was getting dark. One side of the room was lit a soft, filtered red. Sunset through the rats. Oh, very pretty. I set the wicks, checked my fuel, and then lit the lamp. It caught them. Lit them in their gigantic wriggling web of pale, hairless bellies, twitching red tails, bright eyes. Then I started the rotary motor. Life drove them mad as she swung slowly and smoothly about. She blinded them in the fierce, stabbing bar of light, moving continually about of a turning, of a touching, of a moving around and around, and they twitching and shuddering, eyes flaming when they were struck by the light. The bright light moving and behind on the dark side of the room, so close, so close, I dared not turn my back, but you cannot help turning your back when you're in a room made of glass. On the dark side of the room, you could not see them, but only their eyes. Thousands of points of blank red light blinking and twinkling like the stars of hell. <laughs> blinking and twinkling like the stars of hell. That gives me chills oh. every time. <laughs> Oh, that is some excellent writing. That is excellent writing. Um, but I mean, uh, you know, Miles, could you imagine, uh, you know, so many rats that they could heap upon uh, one another to get to the top of a lighthouse? <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's World War Z stuff there. 
Yeah, yeah, that's 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 a horror. Go ahead, Michelle. It's it's actually it was like it's happening in was it New Zealand right now or Australia? They they're having a mouse explosion down there. And oh. they are being they are being buried underneath the rodents. Oh my god, that's terrible. So, um, but uh, but yeah, I this this episode, you know, um, don't listen to it right before bedtime. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> But it is a good one. It is a good one. That and, uh, I, uh, you know, just, just about anything he did. And uh, I didn't get any of the audio from this, uh, but I should have, but I didn't. He did a, a, a radio series called The Price of Fear. Uh, and he is that price yep. of fear. <laughs> um, it, but I found so much other crazy good stuff. And we'll get to that in, in a bit. Um, I have a surprise that I want to play for you guys, but after we'll, we'll, we'll do the flip side. He did some comedy appearances on, on radio too. And in 1951, he appeared on the, uh, Joe, you remember Duffy's Tavern, right? Yes, I do. What happens at Duffy's Tavern? Sorry, I'm putting you on the spot. It's where the elite meet to eat. (laughs) Where the elite meet to eat. (laughs) And uh, <laughs> I forget. I, I don't know that one. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, Duffy's Tavern. Uh, Archie the is the uh, Duffy is the mm-hmm. bar owner who never appears on the show. His wife does, but Archie is the bartender. And in this episode, um, he apparently bumped into Vincent Price and talked him into coming to Duffy's Tavern. And uh, Archie is trying to start a private club for actors and. Um, and the thing is about Duffy's Tavern is the food's disgusting. The place is a dump. Uh, you know, it's it, there's just all kinds of weird characters that come through. It's it's a pretty good. Um, um, it, it, it's a it's a pretty great actually uh, uh, comedy. I mean, the, some of the jokes hold up, and there's not a lot of mean spirited stuff. I uh, you know there there are you know um, lots of ugly jokes for men and women uh, on the show and stuff like that, but. It's really not too mean spirited of a program, um, but uh, this is where uh, uh, Vincent Price shows up uh, to join the uh, Duffy's Tavern. Uh, what I, I don't know the, the celebrity club or actor club. The spotlight, if you please. Well, it's Vincent Price. Good evening, Mr. Price. Believe me, W, welcome to this distinctive establishment. And furthermore... Thank you, Archie, and uh, may I say... Just a minute. Believe uh, me further, say, Mr. Price, that seldom have we behooved such an august presentiment to these confines. <laughs> and further besides... Now, Archie, if you don't mind, I'd like to... Please. <clears throat> I ain't through. The man is in love with the sound of his own voice. <laughs> Now, let me see. Oh, and feel assured, Mr. Price, that your visit is a bereavement from which we will not soon recover. (laughs) If there's anything you desire, just back or call. There's just one thing I would like. What? An edgewise. An edgewise? Yes, so I can put a word in. (laughs) Okay, what's the word? Goodbye. But why? But you just got here. Can you think of a better time to leave? 
please, but you ain't had anything to eat yet. What? Eat here in this moldy mocombo? I'd sooner die. There is no sooner way. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, it's a couple good guffaws there, uh, you know. Uh, but, you know, it, it shows that obviously he wasn't, uh, um, he could go with the self-deprecation humor and everything. He didn't take himself too seriously, you know? Oh, yeah. And he was on the Muppet Show, too. So, you know, you know, he has a sense of humor and he has, he had a lot of fun doing those type of things. Yeah. Well, and he injected a lot of humor into a lot of his movies. I mean, look at, you know, the Fibes movies, for example. Um, oh, yeah. And the, uh, the, um, the Raven. Mm-hmm. And, um, actually, you know, there's, there, there's so many of them that we actually had a comedic bent to at House of Long Shadows. It's got com- comedy in it. Yes. Yes. So, um, let me see. Um, uh, sorry, I'm looking for, um, something here. Um, okay. Yeah. So, uh, th- all right. Um, now this one, this one was a big surprise because it, if, if anybody knows, um, Vincent Price, it, most of his roles, out of I think he has about a hundred film credits, and only like a third of those are horror films. Because you know he started out in like you know, um, you know kind of romantic comedies and, and stuff like that too. Um, and um, uh, but in in uh, nineteen fifty five, something you guys have heard me talk about before, there is a. Um, there's the the uh, I'm sorry it it spanned decades this uh, series but the Lux Radio Theater, um, in 1955 he made an appearance on that uh, and it was shocking I had no idea that he was ever in this and ever played this character and I don't want to tell you who it is because all will be revealed when I play the clip. And it's really exciting because it's probably, quite possibly, one of my top ten favorite stories uh, of all time. You're there. Stand up. In front of the screen. What is your number? 6079. Your name? Winston Smith. Where do you live? Third floor, Victory Mansions. Employment in the party? Records Department, Ministry of Truth. Repeat the slogans of the party with fervor. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. Now, how is Oceania governed? By Big Brother, through the Ministry of Truth, the Ministry of Peace, the Ministry of Plenty, the Ministry of Love. Describe their functions. The Ministry of Truth, News, Entertainment, Education, the Ministry of Peace, Conduct of War, the Ministry of Plenty, Economics. Well, go on. The Ministry of Love, what does that do? I don't know. I have never been there. Let us hope for your sake that you never do. The Ministry of Love is where people who do not love Big Brother are taught to love him. Do you love Big Brother, Winston Smith? I love Big Brother. Repeat it. I love Big Brother. I love Big Brother. Your tour of duty at the records office begins at 900 hours. Be there on time. Yeah, Winston Smith, uh, George Orwell's 1984. So you knew that, Michelle? Yes, yes. Very cool. So if anybody's going to know it, it's going to be you. So, or his daughter. I'm a little bit of a geek when it comes to Vincent Price, so there you go. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Uh, but yeah, I just, I, I'm, I, I was gobsmacked when I found that. I was like, all right, uh, and I'm thinking, 
what line do I want? Well, I have to have him saying his name, you know, I mean, because, you know, if, if it was a more obscure passage uh, of the story, um, you know, you might not have caught on that he was Winston Smith, but that's exciting. Uh, David Niven, I think, did the first uh, radio adaptation of uh, 1984, uh, which is, is a fine, fine version, too. Um, and uh, isn't that one like uh, it's it's Australian or it's it's some it's it's a it's a very rare cut if I remember correctly. Um, the one the one that Vincent Price is in. Oh, okay, okay, that explains it. Why I might not have known about it. I'm looking at it right now. Um, it was produced. Uh, it says it, uh, it was an Australian radio adaptation produced by the Lux Radio Theater. Um, by the major broadcasting uh, network in Sydney, Australia. That's weird. So obviously, the Lux Radio Theater produced different adaptations in different countries. So that's interesting, huh? So there you go. Um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, nineteen eighty four. Uh, I mean, what a what a great role for for Vincent Price to, you know, show. I mean, the character of Winston Smith uh, is is really. It has to be a wildly desirable role for for a seasoned actor, uh, because I mean, look who's you know played him on on the big screen with uh, you know uh, uh, what John Hurt uh, played him in the 1984 version of the film, right, or the 1985 version. Um, you know, I mean, in David Niven, you know, he was you know he was hot stuff back in the day. So, oh yeah. Uh, you know, for an actor to take on that, you know, that's a uh, that's got to be a, a, um, a real satisfying role because of the depth of the humanity of the character and what uh, happens to that character and the, and the pain that is inflicted and the the loss and and then the living with that and what could have been, you know. Uh, so I don't know. Again, 1984 to me is is one of the all-time greatest pieces of fiction. Um, it is it is stunning, and when and I'll tell you what, when people apply the terms of when they say this is Orwellian or this is just like nineteen eighty four or Big Brother, and they don't understand the book, the 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 book, and the story makes me so mad. Because <laughs> um, yeah, I've heard I heard it applied to so many things so incorrectly. Yeah, and it's it's right up there with uh to me Fahrenheit uh four eleven. Uh Fahrenheit four fifty one. Four fifty one, yeah, four fifty one. Because it's it's they're they're both are they're both dystopian futures and they mm -hmm. both have such a very impactful meaning if you actually read it and you understand what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And uh and uh, you know, and I I'll tell you, I'll I'll um I if I, I wish they'd do another adaptation of it because it, it the story itself lends so well to just about every kind of media you know so yeah, um, yeah my problem is i keep getting the 451 mixed up with the 911 which <laughs> well yeah yeah <laughs> you know fahrenheit 451 and then there's uh you know uh fahrenheit 911 which uh 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 michael moore did <laughs> yeah well i use parchment paper a lot for cooking so i gotta remember these things uh so <laughs> <laughs> um so true story uh but yeah so so that's that's pretty cool joe a classic piece of uh fiction um 
And, uh, you know, Vincent Price got to play that role. Absolutely. And uh, what a voice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he could he could read an income tax return and you'd be hooked. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know just he open could... a phone book and you go. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, have him read your bills and you'll be giving him money to pay him. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, but Miles, uh, you know, that, that that's pretty cool to add him to the, the pantheon of, of people who have... Uh, um, well, you know, have participated in in that story, nineteen eighty four. Eighty four, yeah. It's just so it's such a prophetic uh, thing, and uh, yeah, he, he did a great job. You could hear the. Uh, it's just, you know, it, it's so sad how how you can see it applying. Yeah. Uh, to the real real world, uh, you know. Well. And, and uh, I was gonna, I was almost gonna get the, you know, how many fingers am I holding up segment, and I was like, no, I don't want to leave everybody disturbed because <laughs> he did a really good job. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so that was that that was a hoot. Um, and uh, oh my god, everybody's losing power in our area. Just so uh, everybody knows. Oh no, between West Boulevard and Ignatius Avenue. Oh no, that's so close. <laughs> um it this show is going to happen no matter what. If it all has to be on a different date, it will. If it has to be, you know, uh if we have to do it, if the if we lose power tonight, I'm I, we're we're doing this. We'll do seven shows on this. If we if they if it, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, but yeah, See, that's the pa- what you get playing in 1984. See that? Yeah, Big Brother's watching. See? So, um, well, I'll tell you what. Um, we're gonna go to break. I have a lot of stuff, and I'm I'm struggling with how I want to play it. But we're gonna uh, we're not talking about the Twilight Zone tonight, since uh, we have uh, Joe talking about One Step Beyond, and we'll do that at the top of the second hour. But when we come back, I'll do some roundup and play some other really fun stuff for you. Found some great stuff from some LPs that Vincent Price did. Um, they were on the Internet Archive. Uh, I'm assuming that if they if they, if they weren't allowed to be played on shows like this, it would be removed. Um, but since we have three big uh, horror icons, I figured, uh, and, and Mort, oh, yeah, the guy who puts together the song breaks, he couldn't do it because his power's been out since last night. <laughs> So I put together the music block and I figured, why not? I don't think Michelle will argue if we play The Wolfman's Wedding in Hallabaloo. And I also tucked in another Kill the Hippies song called Rite of Passage, uh, which just sounds like a Hammer horror film. So I threw it in. So, uh, yeah, we're going to go ahead and go to the break and we'll be right back with more. It came from Cleveland right after this. This is Vincent Price speaking from the Cleveland Museum of Art. Not far away is all the bustle of a modern American city. Here comes the bride with the ghoul on her side. (laughs) It's the Wolfman's wedding! Tell me, where do they register? Bloodbath and beyond? Old 
Dracula was supposed to be the pastor, but we soon realized it'd be a major disaster. We looked all around and couldn't find a preacher, so we went to the lagoon and hired the creature. Wolfman Wedding. They stated their vows with growls and howls. The bride and ghoul were dressed to be cool. The wedding party was warlocks and bitches. And the big green beastie who was sewn up in stitches. That buffet was substandard. I, I expected more. Well, you know, it's the best meal I've eaten in a while. I bet the wolfman would disagree. <laughs> What's so funny? I don't know. That's just the thing I do. I, just, I say something and I laugh. Because I'm a Dracula. <laughs> it just seems super natural for me to do. Ah, <laughs> oh, the Wolfman wedding. Dracula, why did you throw rice at the happy couple? It's not rice. Those are dried maggots I pulled out of my coffin. <laughs> you fool! It's the Wolfman's Wedding! The Wolfman's Wedding! The Wolfman's Wedding! Oh, the Wolfman's Wedding! goes off to their honeymoon, and I dream the moon. Kiss my 
you very much for coming to Ohalabaloo, or should I say, thank you very much. <laughs> Welcome to Ohalabaloo on this spooky night. Come on in and have a bite on the neck. <laughs> I think you've got a few bats in it's your Halloween. Godzilla was going to come, but he couldn't fit in the room. And the mummy's running late. He goes wrapped up in his tomb. And the ghost say boom. It's a halibaloon. You're gonna be there too. I love you more. I was at the top of my anatomy class. I can find a vein on anybody. <laughs> Dancing ghouls and singing ghosts. Now raise your cup, propose a toast. The blood! <laughs> Who put steak on the buffet? I specifically said no steak on the buffet! Oh, it's not like a little steak will kill you. No, a steak will literally fucking kill me! That is the one thing that will fucking kill a Dracula, is a steak! That's the fucking fact! How could you not know this? Do you live under a rock? Why, yes I do. It's quite an ice rock, might I add. The sun is rising and our hallelujah is coming to an end. We hope you made some ooky friends. What do you mean, friends? I think you mean to say... It's a <laughs> And a ghost say boo. It's a hallabaloo. You're gonna be there too. This boogieing has loosened the nuts in my neck. Wolfman! Get down from my couch, you bad boy! You'll be sleeping in the wolf house tonight! Il y a toujours dans l'histoire du vampirisme cette, cette espèce de sexualité, je pense. Parce que c'est pas seulement mordre quelqu'un ici, c'est pas ça du tout. C'est l'impression qu'on donne en même temps qu'on existe. Il faut exister. Il faut être viril, fort, euh, puissant. C'est tout contenu. Who knew? Christopher Lee could speak French. <laughs> so.
so that was him talking about being Dracula, and I sounded like uh, he said it was uh, sexy or something. So, <laughs> but uh, anything's sexy in French, right? So just ask uh, Gomez Adams. Um, but uh, anyway, welcome back uh, to It Came From Cleveland. Uh, uh, Michelle, uh, there you go. You got some uh, some early Halloween treats uh, for you here. And that made me so happy. I love yeah. that music. <laughs> excellent, excellent. I do too, and I was part of some of it. And, of course, Miles, welcome back to you as well. Hello, thank you. And Mr. Santorsa. Oh, the robots, uh, the robots. They answered your question tonight, Joe. Are, um, are, are they mad at me? Uh, I think it's a mixed bag, honestly. Uh, you're going to have oh, okay. to find out. You're going to have to find out. Um, <laughs> so uh, we'll hear that at the bottom of next hour. And, of course, an all-new mythical moment from uh, Mr. Adam Hebert. Um, but, yeah, so yeah. let's... Hmm? Christopher <laughs> Lee was very fluent. Um, he, he spoke uh, Italian, Spanish, ger and German and French. And he was moderately proficient in uh, Russian, uh, Greek, and Swedish. Jeepers, creepers, semi-star. Um, wow, that's that's amazing. So, uh, but yeah, so uh, uh, very cool. Uh, but yeah, I he I just heard him speaking French, and I was like, well, I don't know French, but that sure sounds like decent French to me. Um, you know, uh, it wasn't he wasn't just saying omelet du fromage. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, here, here we go. Uh, so this is what I want to have a little bit of fun here. Um, I want to play this uh, because it's, I guess, it's technically the last bit of radio audio I have, and it's kind of long. So I want to make sure I get to it. Um, there was a radio series, I believe, a mini series, and I found this at a really great website called The Sound of Vincent Price, and it starred Vincent Price and one and only late great peter cushing um they're all late and great unfortunately but what a mark they left on the world um but there was a series that i had never heard about called aliens in the mind and it is about uh uh the friendship of uh you know the fictional although there's a real life friendship there the fictional uh friendship of two uh of a surgeon and um a doctor, I believe. Uh, the surgeon is uh, uh, Peter Cushing, and the doctor, I believe, is uh, Vincent Price. Um, and um, the the story takes place is the, their friend has died, and they suspect murder. Uh, and it, it, it's, it takes place in Scotland, and there is this emerging uh, threat that uh, they are they are unearthing and i just thought i would play a little bit of this because it's a really high quality and i wanted to you guys to see the interaction uh, between the two uh actors and this was from i believe 1980 i'll double check the date uh but here's a clip from uh or actually 77 pop possibly uh aliens in the mind here's a clip uh, from the first episode. Dear, dear John, I can't tell you how glad I am to see you again. My dear fellow, I'm glad to see you too, and surprised. Surprised? I'm astonished. It's less than a week since Hugh's death was announced. It's quite incredible that you managed to get here from, where was it? The wilds of Borneo? John, I, I wasn't in Borneo. Oh? No, that was just for the minister's benefit. Ah. I'd left Borneo two days before on my way here. 
And when I heard the news of Hugh's death, I was actually making a stopover in Sydney, Australia. You see, I received this letter from Hugh. Uh, look, you'd better read it here. Thank you. <clears throat> My dear Curtis, please read this scribble indulgently because it's extremely difficult for an island vegetable like me to keep a steady leaf between lines, eh? Well, it doesn't make sense. Oh, yes, it does. Don't you remember that silly code we devised when we suspected that horse-faced matron of opening our mail? Oh, good Lord, yes. Let me see now. Uh, first two, wasn't it? Right. First two and last two words in every sentence. That's right. Now you try it again. Ah, I know. Please read the last two. Between lines. Right. A terrible danger here. You must help me. Message end. A terrible danger here. It's as though he knew he was going to die. And who was going to kill him? You can't be serious. Well, he obviously thought his mail was being intercepted. You can't suspect the postman. I don't even know the postman. Well, then. And I hardly know Mrs. Kyle any better. Oh, now, that's preposterous. Well, someone was checking Hugh's mail. It doesn't follow that they killed him. Or indeed that anyone killed him. John... I found this pair of glasses on the beach. Show them to me. They're reading glasses. Oh, I can see that, but they're not necessarily huge. Well, they were just about where his body would have been. Well, surely they would have been in a case. Hugh certainly had a case for them, John. Look, it's right there on the desk. Empty. But it still doesn't prove anything. Not in a court of law, perhaps but it's proof enough for me. You can't really believe that Hugh, or anyone else for that matter, would walk along a dangerous clifftop at night in thick fog with a pair of reading glasses stuck on his nose. It's just not possible. According to the minister, the general opinion is that Hugh was drunk that night. John, that's not possible either. Why? Well, he swore off liquor the night his wife died. Besides... I've seen the autopsy report. When? I made a courtesy call on the coroner earlier today before I arranged for the helicopter to bring me over. But that's not allowed. I know, I know. I think perhaps he was overwhelmed by my medical reputation. I'm amazed. Perhaps we could come to the point, Curtis? The point, my dear John, is that according to the autopsy report, there was absolutely no trace of alcohol in the body. Not in the stomach, not in the blood, not in the urine. None whatsoever. Mm. Curiouser and curiouser. Gosh, if we could only... If we could only find something positive. What did you have in mind? Oh, I don't know. Some notes, a diary, a letter he never dared send. Anything. But where do we start to look? Well, presumably where no one else would think of looking. You think he hid something? I certainly hope so. I would have done it in his place. Oh, yes, I'm sure you would. But don't just stand there, John. Try those filing cabinets. Oh, very well. So there we go. Uh, that is uh, from part one, Island Genesis of Aliens in the Mind. It's a six-part radio series, thir uh, 30 minutes apiece. So well, essentially like a three-hour audio movie. Uh, you know, uh, so if you're into binge listening, what great audio quality that is, too. And you can find free downloads of this over at thesoundofvincentprice.com. 
Uh, I highly recommend everybody go over there and indulge and look at all of the stuff. Uh, there's, you know, there's tabs for documentaries, TV, radio, records, films, theater, uh, and a photo gallery as well. So, uh, what, what a, just an invaluable resource for anybody who's a fan of Vincent Price. Um, and, uh, yeah. So Michelle, had you heard of this one before? No, I have not. That is, that is really cool. I like yeah, that. 1970, go... 1977, if I didn't correct myself on the year. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna listen to that <laughs> definitely. Uh, it it seems like I, I was. That was the thing. I listened to the entire first episode, and I was. I totally wanted to listen to the next one, but I was like, I gotta find a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> I want it. You know, this is what I want. How I want to, you know, present just different things that people could could go and check out and and find. Uh, you know, and, and indulge in. You know, especially. You know, in these times of, of people indulging and stuff uh, until we get back to uh, the way things were, if that ever happens. So, uh, but, I mean, Joe, the, I mean, that, that sounded like audio from a movie. It was so clean. It did. It did. And it sounds like a great thing to listen to. Yeah. I, it definitely up your alley because, you know, you're, you're a yes, big, uh, yes. big sci-fi nut. So as mm. as am I, and so and, and so is Miles. But yeah, so are you intrigued by what aliens could be in the mind, uh, Miles? Yeah, that uh, you were right. That did sound clean and good. Um, I I, uh, I I never really would did listen much to uh, old time radio uh, shows, mm. but uh, that that's uh, yeah. If you're on the road or something like that, that'd be a cool thing to play. Yeah, to. you know, three hour audio book. You know, be good for a road trip or something like that. Um, and, uh, or, you know, just for your commute. Um, uh, so, uh, but yeah, you know, and that's the one thing since it was a BBC production, the BBC radio workshop has done, uh, I mean, they, they did so much for radio in the starting in the sixties and beyond, uh, and even before that, but, uh, but they really, really, really got some great cutting edge techniques for, um, making audio super good and super clean um and, and of course preserving it it sounds like they yeah, preserved yeah. It beautifully if they only would have taken better care of their doctor who tv shows uh they wouldn't have to be animating yeah. ones based on uh guys putting their tape recorders up to the tele television set and <laughs> recording them um so uh, uh but yeah i don't know if you guys have heard that story but they've actually recreated uh, Doctor Who episodes that were lost from the the kids in the you know sixties and seventies and uh, in Britain would hold their tape recorders up to the TV so they could listen back to their Doctor Who you know uh, episodes and um, there were these episodes that were lost I think some of the um, oh who was the who was the second Doctor Joe uh, that was um, Pat Patrick Ton. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Troughton. And, um, Troughton. Yeah, they, uh, there were a couple that they reassembled from this audio and cleaned it up the best of their ability, and mm -hmm. they animated them. So it was pretty neat. Some of it, yeah. Some of it was animated. Some They did have some film left. Yeah, and yeah. If you the, watch some of those episodes, you'll see some film and then some animation. Yeah. So uh, thank, thank, thankfully the fans uh, were able to help uh, save some of that stuff. Um, so this brings me to um, 
some of the records that uh, he was doing were incredible. And, you know, for... I love this. Uh, uh, for Cade, there was Cademan Records. Uh, I think that's how to pronounce it. C-A-E-D-M-O-N. Um, he did four different uh, records for them. Uh, one called A Coven of Witches' Tales, A Graveyard of Ghost Tales, Witches, Ghosts, and Goblins, and A Horn Book for Witches. Uh, again, all of which are available on the Internet Archive. I love these things. There is, they're so twisted and so weird, and the stuff that's on them, it's, it, it's, um, like some of them just they they just threw on ex they threw on sound effects at the end of them and stuff like that, you know. But some of them have stories, but some of them actually have, um, magical spells. And it's so wild because if you think about like the satanic panic in the 80s, you know, well, listen to what Vincent Price has a recipe for a magic candle to find treasure and listen to the first ingredient. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Magic candle to find treasure. Ingredients. Human tallow. Oh. One piece of hazel wood large. Preparation. Make a candle of the human tallow. Fashion the hazel wood into a horseshoe-shaped holder for the candle. Place the candle in the center of the hazel wood so that the candle is between the two parallel sides of the hazel wood. If this candle is lighted in a subterranean place and sparkles brightly with much noise, it is a sign of nearby treasure. It will sparkle more and more as you near the treasure, but will go out when you are quite close. Since the treasures are often protected by spirits of the dead, it is good to have some blessed wax candles along to provide light when the magic candle goes out and to conjure up these spirits to see if there's anything you can do to help them. It is most imperative that you do whatever the spirits may require of you. But Motley Crue did shout at the devil. Uh, so, <laughs> 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 um, yeah. So, I mean, in the covers on these records, they're they're beautiful too. Um, but yeah, he he did uh, a ton of records. He did he did weird stuff too. Like, um, you know, he did uh, America the Beautiful. Um, and you know, the poetry of Shelley, you know, stories from the book of wonder, all this crazy stuff. But I, of course, was just immediately drawn to this stuff where, you know, he's talking like a wizard and telling scary stories. Um, and I thought it would be fun because we know he, he had a deep and abiding love for, um, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, you know, and, and on one of these, um, I think this comes from a horn book for witches. Uh, or no, no, this comes, I think, from a graveyard of ghost tales. I'll find out in a second here. But uh, this is a, a quick um, Edgar Allan Poe Dreamland uh, by Vincent Price. Dreamland. By a route obscure and lonely, haunted by ill angels only, where an Eidolon named Knight on a black throne reigns upright, I have reached these lands but newly, from an ultimate dim thule, 
from a wild, weird clime that lieth sublime, out of space, out of time. Bottomless vales and boundless floods and chasms and caves and titan woods with forms that no man can discover for the tears that drip all over. Mountains topping evermore into seas without a shore, seas that restlessly aspire, surging unto skies of fire, lakes that endlessly outspread their lone waters, lone and dead, their still waters still and chilly with the snows of the lolling lily. By the lakes that thus outspread their lone waters, lone and dead, their sad waters, sad and chilly, with the snows of the lolling lily. By the mountains near the river, murmuring lowly, murmuring ever, by the grey woods, by the swamp, where the toad and the newt encamp, by the dismal tarns and pools, where dwell the ghouls. By each spot the most unholy, in each nook most melancholy, there the traveller meets aghast, Sheeted memories of the past, shrouded forms that start and sigh as they pass the wanderer by, white-robed forms of friends long given in agony to the earth and heaven. For the heart whose woes are legion, tis a peaceful, soothing region. For the spirit that walks in shadow, tis, oh, tis an Eldorado, but the traveller, travelling through it, may not, dare not, openly view it. Never its mysteries are exposed to the weak human eye unclosed. So wills its king, who hath forbid the uplifting of the fringed lid, and thus the sad soul that here passes beholds it, but through darkened glasses, by a route obscure and lonely, Haunted by ill angels only, Where an Eidolon named Night On a black throne reigns upright, I have wandered home but newly From this ultimate dim thule. Ah, giving me chills, I love it. So, uh, yeah, so that one was actually off of, uh, I, I believe that was off a horn book for witches, uh, from 1976, and um, you know, just what what a treat, you know, uh, all of these. And uh, do you do you have the luxury of owning any of these albums uh, in the in uh, hard copies of the albums, Michelle? <laughs> I wish. No. Oh. Oh, okay. No, I, I don't think they're that. I don't think they're that terribly expensive. I think they made it. Oh, really? I've never actually looked up the prices on them. I've always been afraid to because you know. Oh, you know, Vincent Price stuff is pretty premium sometimes. Yeah, I don't know. I'll 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 have to to look it up. Uh, I have my my sources. Um and uh, but yeah, so that was that. I thought that was really fun. And then there's another uh, another quick one. Um, and this one is from. Uh, is it from? Yeah, it's this one is from uh, 1972. Uh, Tales of Witches, Ghosts, and Goblins. I just love this one. It was so silly and and, and fun. Uh, it's called Gobble Knoll, uh, about a hill that eats people. <laughs> so uh, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> 
Gobbleno. There was a hill that ate people. The rabbit's grandmother told him never to go near it. So the rabbit went to the hill and shouted, Gobbleno, swallow me, come, devour me. But Gobbleno knew the rabbit and took no notice. Later that day, a group of travelers came by looking for a place to shelter from the rain, and Gobbleno opened his green and ferny lips, and the travelers thought that they had found a cave. They went in, and the rabbit slipped close behind them. But the hill felt hairy pads on his tunnels, and before the rabbit could reach the middle, Gobbleknoll threw him out and the grass shut. The rabbit went and hid behind a tree, and a few days later a hunting party arrived at the hill just before night, and Gobbleknoll opened again. This time the rabbit used magic art and took the shape of a man, except for his ears, which he tucked down his shirt, so that they would not brush against the roof and make Gobbleknoll sneeze. He went down long and horrid passages until he came to the hill's stomach, and there were the remains of all the victims, and some who were not yet dead. Hey, 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 shouted the rabbit. Why don't you eat? You leave the best. Here's a delicious heart. What's wrong with that? Gobbleknoll set up a dismal howling, for it was his own heart that the rabbit had seen. And the rabbit knew this and took out a knife and stabbed the hill dead. The ground split and the blue sky lit the deep hollows and the living came out and wept before the rabbit and wanted to give him power and riches. But all the rabbit would take was Gobbleknoll's fat and he went home with it on his back, and he and his grandmother were fit to burst from it for many a day. Dan is a sick rabbit eating gobble yes. fat. <laughs> 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 so um, uh, I did a little bit of research. It looks like any the LPs sell anywhere from forty to sixty dollars, which is not bad. Uh, you know, if you if you consider uh, you know a, a new record back in the day was. Anywhere from, you know, uh, I guess four to seven dollars, you know, adjust for inflation. That's pretty good. So <laughs> I definitely have to look into it sometime. But right now I don't even have a turntable that works. So. Oh, no, that's fine. You know, well, they sell, you know, Michaels has those uh, LP frames and the covers on these things are gorgeous. So, um, but yeah, that's something I'll be on the lookout for because that would be cool to frame and hang up. But yeah, so uh, uh, you gonna write a gobble knoll into one of your campaigns, Michelle? Um, <laughs> not particularly. <laughs> uh, I'll do it. Miles will do it. So it's 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 like that movie about the uh, the bed that ate people, uh, but it's a hill that eats people. Oh so yeah, deathbed, <laughs> deathbed. Well, um, the appeal of gobbling, it's just what? Wait, what? What's that? I didn't say a thing. Okay. <laughs> Whatever, weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, so these are, these are fun little records, uh, uh, Joe. I mean, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're pretty twisted. Yeah, I was the rabbit. Is he from the same one from Money Python? 
Uh, could be. Could be. Look at the bones. So, uh, <laughs> yes. anyway, uh, we got to go to the break because we're going to come back and talk about... Uh, One Step Beyond! Yeah, uh, that's all we're using to that song. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so, but here, uh, Peter Cushing, in his own words, about what kind of movies he and Christopher Lee made, not horror. Peter Cushing, you're known to pretty well everyone in this country for your roles in horror films, but horror isn't a term you like, is it? It isn't that I object to it, I just feel it's the wrong adjective as applied to the films I do. Because horror to me is, say, a film like The Godfather or anything to do with war, which is real, can happen, unfortunately, no doubt will happen again sometime. But the films that dear Christopher Lee and I do are really fantasy, and I think fantasy is a better, better adjective. I don't project to the term horror, just the wrong adjective. It's going to be a good night. It came from Cleveland, Ohio. Horrors of fearsome mutated beasts back from the dead, kept alive by experimental science. Science runs amok when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Now at last, the real shocking story can be told. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. A nightmare combination of shock and terror, and you're invited. A foolish you. Something evil. <laughs> oh, you are naughty boy. You know, you've been reading things about me. <laughs> Not recommended for impressionable children. Welcome back to It Came From Cleveland. We have very thematic uh, little audio drops tonight. That, of course, was Peter Cushing. A very naughty boy. <laughs> Even yeah. So, yeah, uh, had to be done. Uh, but yeah, so welcome back, uh, Michelle and Miles. Uh, I'm looking forward to your guys' contributions to the show tonight. And oh, we're gonna uh, have fun tonight. <laughs> oh yeah, and we'll have leftovers uh, in the last segment. But uh, but uh, this was such a great episode. I didn't want to push this to the back in the in case we might run out of time. Um, it's uh, in Joe Santorsa. You're a big fan of One Step Beyond. Yep. So, <laughs> uh, wrong one. But okay. Yeah, yeah. But it's a good, it's a good, uh, uh, you know, audio representation. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so anyway, Joe, why don't you set this, uh, set us up uh, for for this episode of uh, One Step Beyond? So we have Christopher Lee, uh, who is uh, playing Wilhelm. Reitlinger, Reitlinger, who is a, a German officer in World War One, who is assigned to a mundane task of setting up telephone poles, <laughs> actually, yeah, so that telephone wires can be sent from the front to Berlin to mm -hmm. better expedite the war. Yes, and he's sort of um, missing his girlfriend, so. Um, he gets a letter from his, well, let's put it this way, that that would be in the flashbacks. The opening scene, he is in a uh, courtroom where a military court is presenting a sentence, uh, a finding of innocent. 
and uh, he is very upset. Findings of the Court of Inquiry convened. Oh, sorry, I thought that was my cue. Right, sorry, I I think you have clip one. Yeah, clip one. There we go. Findings of the Court of Inquiry convened by order of the Commander, 18th Military District, on February 3rd, 1915. The court finds that there are no grounds for bringing criminal charges against Oberleutnant Wilhelm Reitlinger. I'm guilty, Herr President. It is the decision of this court that you are to be granted a month leave at the end of which time you will return to duty with your unit. I protest. I'm guilty. I demand a trial. Yeah. Hmm. He's convinced he did this, whatever this crime is that uh, was impossible for him to have committed. Exactly. So, in a flashback, um, he, uh, we, we see uh, Christopher Lee, Wilhelm, uh, having a conversation with a uh, with a uh, a farmer uh, on whose land they have to cross with these telephone wires, and the the farmer isn't very very uh, happy about um, having the military go across his land with these wires, and what would they do? And well. He, he's just not convinced that uh, war is very good, and um, this enrages uh, Wilhelm because war is loyal and right. And um, the farmer says, well, I'll consider it, signing the document, allowing you to do this, but uh, I have to consult the others. And What others? <laughs> well, well let's find out. I think that's in yeah. this clip. Sign this paper. Make your mark. Whatever it is you do. You had better come back tomorrow. I have to talk to the others. Aren't you alone here? No. The other animals. What did you say? My animals. An entire army group is waiting for his telephone wire and you wish to consult your cows? Perhaps you have not noticed that we are at war. I have noticed. It is a hideous thing, the war. It is a glorious thing, and it is your patriotic duty to assist the armed forces. Do I have to remind you of that? No, you do not. I thought very much about the war. Sometimes when I sit here at night alone, I listen. I hear the death cries of millions of men. So much disaster. Some nights it is so bad I can hardly bear it. And a great heaviness hangs in the air. Ooh. This guy's a bit eccentric. Uh, Yeah. Uh, That's a word for it. (laughs) Some would say he was quite crazy. But, uh, you know, they they make him sign the the paper, and he signs the paper, and he says, "Uh, go, go away from me. So, um... Wilhelm then uh, is goes. We next see him in a bar, a tavern Getting nearby sauced. where he's 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 drunk. <laughs> yeah, and um, he's reading a letter from from Eva, his girlfriend, who um, apparently Elsa rather. Uh, who apparently has told it was a dear John letter. Let's face it; it's mm-hmm. a, it was a letter telling him that uh, 
she has uh, fallen in love with some other. Well, let's put it this way: she fell in love with the whole regiment of Echo, <laughs> and she was systematically going through them, <laughs> one by well, one. Everybody needs a hobby. Yeah, yeah, and uh, basically, uh, she was uh, not uh, waiting for him to come home. Yeah, and besides, kind of an officer was he? He putting up telephone poles when there were, you know, real real men, men here fighting in yes. trenches. Fighting and stuff. Huff and mustard gas. So, yes. So, um, he so he um, his friend uh, goes over to sit with him, another officer, and oh, you know, and all this, and you know, it's like, well, you know, and, and he said, uh, then he calls over the bartender. I got that right here for you. Yes. And okay. Tell me something. Man, we met today. Farmer who lives at the head of the valley. You know him? Which farmer, Herr Oberleutnant? One who talks to his animals. Oh, yes, Herr Oberleutnant. We all know him. Klaus Karnak. Hey, hey, hey. Now, come back. What's the matter with you? You're frightened. No, no. Yes. You're frightened. Why? Others. Others are frightened, Herr Oberleutnant. Simple people, you know. They say he can set a neighbor's house on fire just with a thought. <laughs> <laughs> the trees talk to him. He can read the future. See things that are happening a long way away. And you believe that? If I may give my advice, Herr Oberleutnant, have nothing to do with this man. He is dangerous. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and he, he's a bit dangerous. He is a bit dangerous. And um, so, naturally, um, Wilhelm does not take the bartender's advice. Heck no. Why would you do that? Why? It's it's like, you know, in those horror films when, uh, you know, um, they hear that something door. outside. <laughs> yeah, they go outside. <laughs> Why don't we hide right behind the chainsaw? So, yeah. um, <laughs> so he goes over to uh, Karnak's, um, and it's not Johnny Carson, by the way. He goes yeah. over to Karnak, uh, the farmer, uh and he wants to know what he he knows about his girlfriend or and he, you know the farmer says you have reason for it. Yeah, you've impressed me, he says. And uh that's where this yes. clip starts. You have impressed me this evening. You were right about something. There is another reason. It has nothing to do with Telephone wires. A letter. It says nothing. And everything. I love her. You 
reason to worry. What can you see? Tell me. Tell me. Why don't you go and see for yourself? That's impossible. Nothing is impossible. I gotta say, the, the, the Christopher Lee's performance in this is remarkable, and this guy who plays it the... Is. the uh, the title character is is pretty great too. Karnak. He was also yeah. in some Bond film. Oh, okay. Yes, he played the villain in a few uh, Bond. Very cool. So but, uh, you know, well, so did um, well Christopher he, Lee, Man with the Golden Gun, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had that in common. So they did. <laughs> they worked together nicely. Only that not this time yeah. <laughs> because. He leads Christopher Lee. He puts out all the lights. And turn, well, turns out all the lamps in the in the the farmhouse, and he it's dark. And he um, he takes him over to the wall and says, "Go, go, go, one more step." I think I we got a little clip. bit more. I think we have a little bit uh, more of that. So it, here's let's just play clip five, and then I think six. Uh, you can go. What are you doing? You can go. What are you doing? Just one more step. One more step. One step So yeah, he pushed him right up against the wall. Take one more step, he disappears. And he disappears. Poof, stumbles, gone. stumbles into and another place. Stumbles entirely. into, stumbles into his girlfriend's house. Yeah, where he finds Elsa with, um, shall we say, other other men. Uh, yeah, she can't even keep uh, their names officer. straight. <laughs> right, but he, he, he witnesses uh, her kissing goodbye another officer. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, then he, he surprises her after the officer leaves. Wilhelm. By popping out of... My letter. It was perfectly clear. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah. So it's oh no, 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 no! He kind of he kind of lurks. Right. He kind of lurks and then pops out and uh, and you know she's like, "You've been spying and like, on me." Uh-huh. And yes, and why didn't you tell me you're coming back to Berlin? Yeah. And then she addresses the the dear John letter. Wilhelm, hmm. my letter. It was perfectly clear. Yes, perfectly clear. What a extraordinary character you are. How did you get away from your telephone pole? Oof. I'm sorry, Willem. But you're so unfortunate. Things seem to happen to you that could never happen to anybody else. That officer who left just now. Not in love with him, are you? I'm in love with all of you. Does that shock you? They are going to the front to fight, to do great and wonderful things for me. What have you ever done for me? 
I don't like being taken for granted. I am not your property and I resent being preached to and spied on. I may have said I was in love with you. Perhaps at the time I even thought I was. Absurd as it seems. You know, there is something rather absurd about you, Willem. There always has been. Your behavior tonight would have been absolutely infuriating if it weren't so comical. Oof. Ooh, ouch, that hurt. Yeah. So he shattered. Not quite yep. dead. Because uh, apparently she was alive long enough to... Uh, tell people who her assailant was but in the meantime he returns back to um, he returns back to the farmhouse and uh, in a drunken like, okay that was a trick you you hypnotized oh yeah yeah that's right uh, here yeah. you hypnotized me yes that's what you did you hypnotized me I've heard about that sort of thing so that was your secret. I did nothing. I only helped you to go where you wanted. <laughs> you are fake. You are an extremely clever one, but you are fake. Ah, uh, maybe not. Yeah, he's, he's a fake. So, um, he dismisses the whole thing as hypnosis, and, and uh, that could not have happened. And um, he goes home drunk to bed. And um, he's awakened the next morning by uh, one of his uh, other uh, officers in his troop and saying, get up, it's six o'clock. You know, like, you're late for the office. <laughs> Let's get going to the telephone poles <laughs> and get the, <laughs> get the wires to Berlin. And uh, he says, there is, there is a military officer outside. Talk to you. said, what's wrong with you? Uh, you had a girlfriend in Berlin? Do you have that cut? Uh, I don't know if it's that. I don't think so. I think our next cut think... starts after he counts his bullets. Right, right, right. So so he... he um. He he's. I I don't I don't want to talk to him because. I understand she did. Believe it was murder. She was shot. So, throws the guy out and he panics and he pulls his luger out and he pulls the clip out and he counts one, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight clips, eight eight bullets and then he ejects the cartridge out of the chamber and there's there's uh, i'm sorry there were seven in the clip then there was the eighth i there think nine yeah should, there should, there should, should be, be nine. nine yes nine and um <laughs> nine nine so he um he realizes that somehow somewhere he did it yeah through this sorcerer so he insists on a trial uh, that that he'd be found guilty for this murder he wants to be held accountable and we have that clip here it was i who fired that shot fraulein book said so herself she said it was me 
You heard the police testimony. Stand to attention, Oberleutnant. You've already wasted enough of our time. For three days, we've had to sit and listen to this hysterical nonsense. You could not possibly be one place one moment and 800 kilometers away the next moment. Why you insist on such madness is beyond me. Hmm. So, they really, like, they've had it with him. Okay, enough for your sorcerer and your, your traveling 800 kilometers away in, like, a minute. And that's all nonsense. And uh, the officers walk away before, but before they tell him, I don't even know how you became an officer. Yeah, you're a disgrace to the uniform. <laughs> and that. Yeah. And um, they walk away. But... The psychiatrist says, before he leaves, tells him, look, um, you know, you're, you're going to be able to, uh, maybe you can uh, reclaim your reputation. Nothing's going to be said about this because in your file, in the official file, it says diagnosis. Un so uh, you cut out a little bit. Diagnosis what? All right. Undetermined. Ah. So, um, he said, so you, you will not, there'll be no record of this. Uh, and so he's, he's very disappointed and, and he said he wants to be held accountable. How the hell am I going to get these people to believe that I somehow traveled 800 kilometers last night and killed my girlfriend and came back? even though that sounds impossible. Well, they won't believe him. Well, he has to find a way to be punished. So it comes to him. I'll go back to the farm. He does go back to the farmhouse. And it goes a little something like this. This they will believe. And they did. Oberleutnant Wilhelm Reichner was executed for the murder of the farmer Klaus Karnick on March the 8th, 1915. The records of this amazing case were discovered among the files of the German War Ministry. And somewhere, moldering with age to be sure, but somewhere, is a hospital file labeled Wilhelm Reitlinger, not yet diagnosed. A question waiting to be answered. There you go. It was a the very, very compelling episode. I, I was I was really glued to my seat with this one. So it was very nice. Yep. Yeah, and again, yeah, so um, what a great performance from Christopher Lee. It was. And it was that he was determined to be found guilty. And in the end, he, he figured, well, I'll go and commit another murder. And this one, they'll know I did. And he did. Yeah. He killed Karnak. And, uh, not Johnny Carson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and not the Marvel Comics character either. Uh, the Inhuman. No. Um, but yeah, so, you know, why not kill uh, the guy who made you able to travel that distance? I guess that makes uh, the, you know, the best right. sense. Right. So, um, yeah, it was a great episode. It's you're right. It's probably one of the the best one step beyond 
I know you haven't seen many. Um, it is one of the, I would say, top five or six of, of mm -hmm. the One Step Beyonds. So, uh, and of course, Christopher Lee's first appearance on television ever. And uh, as you said, he shared with uh, the farmer Karnak, uh, they both went on to be uh, Bond villains. How's that? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's that's uh, that's quite uh, quite an, uh, an episode of TV. I, I don't think uh, I've seen I've seen stories that share some similarities, but nothing quite mm -hmm. like this. You know, this was uh, this was right. a pretty unique storytelling uh, that hasn't been um, uh, imitated too closely. And as I said. You know, what's amazing about One Step Beyond is they're all based on some urban legend, some mm -hmm. uh, quasi-factual accounting of an event. Yeah. None of them are, are I don't know how, how, none of them are pure fiction. In other words, nothing, nothing the writer totally made up because they pulled them out of legends and, and uh, mm -hmm. stories that have been handed down over the years. So, and this is one of them. Quite incredible, uh, you know. The, yeah, that's the, what made the series so incredible. Is that is that these these stories all had some, uh, I won't say factual, but uh, basis in, like I said, in human uh, tale. Yeah, well, a nugget of truth. Uh, uh, not not the total imagination of a screenwriter. Let <laughs> me put it that way. Yeah. So, well, there you go. So, all right. Well, very well done, Joe. I appreciate that. We do have to get running uh, to the break. Uh, but that was a really fun episode, uh, I got to say. And, um, uh, Miles, were you able to see the, the episode? or? Uh, no, I was not. That's all right. Well, you just got the recap right there. So, um, all right. Well, go. I'll tell you what. We got to go to the break right now. Uh, when we come, uh, well, but on this break... Mythical Moment number eight, and the robots number eight uh, coming up. Uh, the robots are going to answer Joe's question, and I'm sure Joe is just on the edge of his seat waiting to find out what happens. <laughs> Liter literally. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, we'll be right, right back with lots more fun here on our uh, trio of terror Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, Vincent Price, and uh, we're going to learn a little bit of something about uh, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing during World War II from Miles. We'll be right back. For Radio for Humans, and it came from Cleveland, this is your mythical moment number eight, Athens. Don't be salty. Myth can explain many things. It can explain the origins of rules and customs of a society. It can reveal traits idolized by the originating culture. It can explain how the world works and how it came into being. But it can also explain mundane things. This week... We'll look at one such myth that tells us how Athens got its name. Athens is famous in Western civilization as one of the origins of democracy, and yet such an important city came from surprisingly humble origins. As it was built up through the hard work and devotion of its people, 
the question of the newly founded city's guardian came up. And, said John Q. Publicopolis, the new city needed a name. And so it was agreed by the people of the city that they would name the city after their new patron. Of all the Olympians, two of them showed a great deal of interest in the role of patron. First was Poseidon, god of the sea and elder brother of Zeus. The other was Athena, the goddess of wisdom and strategic warfare, as well as Zeus's daughter. Both made very persuasive arguments for the position, and the people of the city were split pretty evenly. Soon, the two Olympians came to agreement. Whoever could provide the best gift to the city would become its patron god and become the namesake of the fair city. The nature of the challenge settled and accepted. The two gods made their way to the Acropolis of the new city, the highest point of the area. A drachma was flipped and Poseidon won, getting to choose when to go. Confident in his victory, Poseidon decided to go first, stepping forward with an arrogant smirk. He struck the ground with his iconic trident, the weapon containing the raw, awesome power of the seas and sending that elemental power surging through the ground. From the ground came a spring, with water bubbling forth from the point Poseidon had struck. Figuring he had it all sewn up, he walked away, beginning to ponder names for the new city that would honor him. His smirk melted away, however, as one of the city people took a drink from the spring, only to spit it out. Poseidon had created a beautiful spring to be certain. However, his power was that of the sea, and the sea was salt water. As such, the spring he had created gushed salt water. People or animals couldn't drink of the water, nor could it be used to water crops. His attempt was truly impressive, that as a source of water, it was basically worthless. Her spear in hand, Athena stepped forward, carefully considering the gifts she would create for the people. The momentum seemed to be going in her direction at this point, but she still needed a truly amazing gift to seal the deal. Her uncle had created a beautiful landmark, but it lacked any practical use. She decided she would go all in on a gift that would be practical in its nature, something that had many uses. Getting an idea, she struck the ground of the Acropolis with the butt of her spear twice. As the gathered people watched in amazement, a tree started to grow from the spot Athena had struck. Soon, a full-sized tree had finished growing, bearing small oblong fruits. Athena had created the olive tree. Its wood would serve many uses. Its oil could be used to cook food, fuel lamps, and had medicinal use and would come to be important for religious ceremonies. The people of the city judged Athena's gift to be the best, and she was declared patron of the city-state, which then came to be known as Athens. For Rare for Humans, and it came from Cleveland, this has been Adam Hebert reminding you that if you want to be considered for the position of city patron, it's best not to be salty. On a side note, starting next week, we'll be trying something new for Mythical Moment. We'll be doing our first serial story, telling the backstory of one of the most famous heroes from the Chinese novel Journey to the West. We'll be talking about Sun Wukong, the handsome monkey king and great sage equal to heaven, the story of his rise, and how his hubris led to his fall, all before he fell in with a monk of the Tang Dynasty as part of an epic journey to the West. Back to you, Kenny. Background music is Medieval Fantasy Adventure by Alexander Nakarada, who can be found at www.serpentsoundstudios.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks, Alexander.
It's time to check in with the robots. Oh looky here. We have a brand spanking new question from Mr. Clown Car himself, Joe Santorum. Didn't he get fired from CNN for being a jerk? No different guy. Okay let's see what his question is all about. I'm sure it's just great. Oh. My. God. What is the problem Robus fellow? Let me read this carefully. Aluminium foil? Myla? Dingle bearings? I cannot believe my photoelectric eyes. How offensive. Give that to me. I want to see what he is asking. Okay I see. Now, he wants to know how we clean our robot holes after pooping. That's a fair question. He's talking about mylar and aluminium foil. He just wants to understand how our robot buttholes are cleaned. I appreciate Joe's natural curiosity. So here we go. It's a much more complicated process. Fortunately for you we have a guest lecturer on the subject. Please welcome Commander Robot everyone. Hi there everyone. My name is Commander Robot. Let's talk about cleaning up those filthy robot holes. Great. That's what I thought. You'll want to know how to clean up them dirty dirty crap cans. Okay, step 1. The laser scraper. Step 2. The neutron clamp. Step 3 in the final stage of our process. Aluminum foil and deflated my large balloons for finishing touches on those dingle bearings. There you have it. Thank you for being here. I love you all. Take care of them filthy robots. What a great honor. Commander Robot is such an expert. I know I was offended by the question before but I was delighted to hear from an expert. I just don't know how Joe figured out our robot hole secrets. Well he has been reporting about soulless clowns for a while and working on machines in his garage. Maybe that gave him insight into our awful existence. Our filthy ugly existence. Sigh. I guess you're right. Excuse me. I gotta drop the kids off at the pool. TMI fellow. TMI. I shouldn't have eaten the leftover crispy squirrel and onion pizza from Pizza Planet. That garbage is like a month old. Groan. I'm not gonna make it. <laughs> oh, those wacky robots. Thanks so much. Be sure to send your listener questions to Kenny Pick for the robots to answer. sick. Well, Joe Santorum, I mean, Santorza, welcome back to the show. (laughs) 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 How did they get me mixed up with him? Oh, my. (laughs) Well, I hope they answered your question uh, properly. They even had a guest lecturer there for you, uh, Commander Robot. I'm impressed. I, I... I didn't expect that. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, they really. I thought they'd come up with like, like a robot bidet or something. No, no, the, just the laser scraper <laughs> and the neutron clamp, and then of course you okay, guessed it. Okay, that sounds 
yeah. hurtful. And then, of course, <laughs> you guessed it, the uh, Mylar, uh, deflated Mylar balloons and um, uh, aluminum, aluminum foil. So For the get, dingle bearing. Tell you what, it was a challenge to get them to pronounce it aluminum. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, phonetics, man. Uh, so, anyway, uh, welcome back uh, to the show. And, Joe, I hope you like that. And, Michelle, uh, yeah, the robots, <laughs> robots strike again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, and uh, last but not least, of course, Miles, uh, you're going to, uh, of course, you're a history buff, uh, also a fan of the Star Wars franchises, and um, uh, yeah, and uh, I, I do have a couple little audio clips for you from uh, Lee and Cushing on Star cool. Wars, but you wanted to talk uh, more about uh, what they did. I'm going to touch on them, yes. Uh, the... Uh, World War II, pretty big event, <laughs> and so when you're dealing with people as old as uh, you know the, the the three of them, um, yeah, uh, I'll I'll just mention uh, Vincent Price uh, was an American and um, born in I think Missouri under to an aristocratic family, so his yeah he didn't do much during World War II that was of note. Yeah, I think he ran a um, an art gallery. <laughs> the most exciting thing was having uh, I think Catherine Hepburn show up or something to that yeah. effect. It was the uh, yeah. So, but anyway, um, Peter Cushing was um, an actor. You know, in in 1939 when you know the war broke out, and he um, was talked into joining the. Uh, the the um, what's it called the uh, Edge Entertainment National Services Association. It's like uh, the the ESO. What's the USO? USO. USO. Uh, of the of the Americans. So he would be going around the British Isles entertaining uh, the British troops, as you were for or, um, you know during World War Two, and it was um, he was asked to play a lead role in a play. In 1942, um, the, the the name of the play, you know, I don't have it. It wasn't a famous one; no one will recognize it. Mm -hmm. But he met uh, uh, his his well, the woman that would be his wife, and she was playing the lead role, the lead female role, and uh, her name was Helen Beck. And uh, so, yeah, they met in 1942, and then they married on April 10th. Of 1943, so I'm I'm a fan of um, celebrities finding love and having uh, you know successful marriages, if you will. And this is one that stood the test of time. They they uh, they remained married all the way until her death. Yeah, in uh, 1971. So you you've got a lot of respect for like uh, Angelina Jolie and Billy Bob Thornton, then, right? <laughs> oh wow. Uh, <laughs> I guess, yeah. I mean, no. Does anybody remember <laughs> that? Go ahead. <laughs> no, I actually I I don't. And anytime I I only think of um um what's his name with Angelina Jolie, the one she seduced under um, away from Jennifer Aniston. What's Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. Thank you. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah, uh, I know. I, 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 I root for them. I'm like I have like um, Val Kilmer and Joanne Wally uh, in the movie Willow. 
Like, wow, you know, like that's awesome. But yeah, no, that didn't last. Anyway, so back to the uh, um, Cushing. So he unfortunately suffered some uh, lung congestion um, and uh, uh, while touring. I mean, I guess because disease is just rampant during wartime. I mean, it's yeah. just, I mean, uh, it's horrible. Uh, it, it, everything goes to crap when you're talking about hygiene and, and uh, you know, there's death and it's just, it's just nasty stuff. So he, uh, he got sick and he made ends meet uh, as he could as uh, making ladies headscarves <laughs> during the war. And, uh, but uh, yeah, that, that was, um, that, he, he, that's basically what he did. Uh, during the war, was just go around touring, playing, and then and, and getting sick and making ladies' headscarves. Uh, it, it wasn't, it wasn't as glamorous a uh, a role in the war, but yes, it's still a contribution. Um, one thing I will note is that he was uh, uh, touring, I believe, in Africa, and the base he was at was under attack uh, by the Luftwaffe during one of the plays uh, that, that he was oh, performing wow. with. So, so that that's an incident that that's worth mentioning. But Christopher Lee, it's braver than there's setting up a guy poles. braver than setting that, up telephone poles. Yes, <laughs> uh, there's a guy that really uh, did some ha had some gravitas for uh, his his contribution to uh, in World War II. So war broke out, and Christopher Lee volunteered, along with some other British individuals, to go join the Finnish army over in Finland. That was in the middle of the Winter War with the Soviet Union. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's not nothing. Um, so for those that, you know, think, wait, the Soviet Union was on our side. You see, anyway, yeah, Germany and Soviet Union divided up the, the Europe and until uh, Hitler decided he needed caucus oil. Anyway, so, uh, yes, the Soviet Union attacked Finland. And the Finnish were so impressed or grateful for this show of support that they took these British volunteers, they issued them winter gear, and then they put them safely behind the border. <laughs> put them on guard duty, out of harm's way, you know, because, uh, I mean, you don't want to... That's what the Finnish did. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they just they protected these guys. And... Um, uh, in an interview, Lee uh, pretty much said that had he, because um, he knew how to shoot, but he didn't know how to ski. And had oh. he been sent to the front line, he he believed he would have died um, against the uh, Soviet forces, which it's a, it's, it's a fair thing to say. So after two weeks, the they were sent back. So... But, hey, they went over, made the effort, and the Finns were like, hi, great, thanks so much, stand over there. Okay, <laughs> bye. <laughs> so, well, it is what it is. So he returns uh, to Britain, where he then goes to work for uh, cargo shipping. Um, now, I don't know that if he, he was on any of the ships. I couldn't find any details about that. But uh, you've all heard my stories talking about submarine warfare during World War II and what an utter disaster it was for cargo ships. Uh, with, with uh, German submarines hunting them left, right, and center. But uh, he only did that. He only worked at this cargo shipping for about a year. And then he worked for a place called Beecham, which mm -hmm. was a pharmaceutical company in London. 
and then Beecham left London. I guess Hitler was bombing London too much, and the pharmaceutical company went, eh, now we're pulling, and they left. Yeah. So after that happened, he joined the Home Guard, which is basically a militia of people guarding London, and he was in that for a short time. And then in March of 1941, his father caught bilateral pneumonia and died. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, so that was that that had to be a kick uh, in the teeth. So um, basically, Christopher Lee did not want to follow into his father's uh, footsteps and join the army. Yeah. And so he took the opportunity to volunteer for the Royal Air Force. Now, there is a lot of talk in the, of, of Christopher Lee and where he goes in the Royal Air Force. He actually trains in a uh, British biplane to fly. He is a pilot. And unfortunately, in uh, his penultimate uh, training mission, um, he develops uh, some blurred vision and some headaches. And when he uh, gets examined by the, you know, the medical examiner as to, uh, you know, what, what's afflicting him, medical examiner gives him the bad news that he has um, optic nerve damage or infection of some kind. Oh, gosh. And so basically this ends uh, Christopher Lee's chances of ever flying again. So that's that <laughs> so he can't yeah. be a he can't he can't be that just literally i mean to 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 phrase it shoots down his uh chance to be a pilot yeah well you know you, you um, mentioned that he couldn't ski uh but he could shoot so i guess that's how he landed uh a gig with uh, the man with the golden gun and not uh, uh skiing against george uh lazenby and uh her majesty's secret service <laughs> yeah I, I i suppose but uh i mean yeah i mean christopher lee I mean, you know, kudos to the guy. He's got some. He's got some gravitas. So he he can't become a pilot. So then he applies for the intelligence branch of the RAF and gets accepted. So he is going around being an analyst. He's collecting the information, figuring out strategic targets and what have you. He spends um, a, a great deal of time down in Africa, hopping between uh, air bases, and you know. Picking, picking strategic targets and you know, helping uh, ground support, mm -hmm. uh, which is what the air air units did uh, for the most part. So then Africa, uh, you know, uh, it, uh, when you're at an air base, you're targeted by the enemy. They'll come in and shoot you up. So, you know, he, he suffered some few attacks, but nah, he, 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 he survived that. And then his unit was moved after the, con after the win in Africa. His unit was moved up to... Uh, Italy, and he got sick. Um, his, his lungs started having congestion, which <laughs> that's the common thing apparently during war. And so, when he came back, apparently the unit that he was working with was uh, like borderline mutinous. They were pretty much uninformed. They didn't know anything of what was going on in the world. No one was keeping them up to date. And so they were on the verge of like rebelling, and uh, oh, wow. Christopher Lee is credited with because hey, he's the intelligence guy; he knows everything, so he fills in the troops on everything. <laughs> and 
I think he said it was just like, yeah, I think they regretted asking afterwards, but he gave them everything. And so once the troops were in the know, then they went back to, you know, things calmed down and they stopped being mutinous and, uh, and, and, and what have you. He was credited for calming their silly asses down. Pretty much. Well, I mean, uh, it, to be fair, when you're a grunt on the ground and you're following orders and your higher-ups don't tell you shit, it can be demoralizing. I know. I used to be in a union, so I understand. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not comparing being in a union to being a soldier. I, I apologize. Thank you. Thank you all for your service. Right. Okay, so... Um, with that, I'm going to hop over to the Wilhelm Wilhuff Tarkin. Wilhuff. Wilhuff Tarkin played by Peter Cushing in the Star Wars movies. Now, this the the storyline of Wilhuff Tarkin is vast, but it's um pretty unexciting to talk about in that he does yeah. not do anything like like Darth Vader. Darth Vader is the uh, thug of the Emperor. He is the one that goes around and just kicks ass. Yeah. Tarkin's kind of like the guy that stands on the bridge of a ship and says, yes, point the ship's guns over on that part of the planet over there and bombard it. You know, that's the kind of, you know, it's, it's not as exciting. So... But um, he was born, you know, out in the spans. Of the oh, 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 oh! Before I get to that, you, I, I do need to touch on the actor uh, playing. Uh, so Peter Cushing, when he was playing Tarkin, apparently, uh, everyone's seen the uniforms that were given to the Imperial officers, and this included boots. And apparently, the uh, costume makers did not make boots that fit Peter Cushing very well. And they I have a clip for that. Tight, if, if and you, they were uncomfortable. It's if cool. you want, yes. in, right. his own, in his own words, because... Uh, Let's uh, roll that clip. This dude had some big damn feet. What was the Star Wars experience like for you? <laughs> oh, you are naughty boy. You know you've been reading things about me. <clears throat> well, I don't think I'll share... Yes, I will. How would have hoped it? See that? Over 12 inches from there to there. Big feet. Um, now, uh, Berman and Nathans have looked after me, man and boy, for years and years and years. And they've never let me down once, except on this occasion, because I was dressed as a rather like an Edwardian chauffeur with a high collar up here and a sort of fountain pens across here as Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars. And a pair of boots, riding boots, was it came right up to here, tight-fitting, you see. Incidentally, I've often wondered what a grand moth is. Sounds like something that came out of a closet. Close closet. Grand moth. <laughs> Close closet. Uh, I've gone off the track. <laughs> they hadn't got time to have my boots made for me, which is usually the case, because of my large feet. So I had to do with a pair out of stock. So there I was on the first day of shooting, this very, very cross, uh, unpleasant gentleman, Grand Moff Tarkin, stomping around, and it was agony, Ivy, it really was. So the next day I said to dear George Lucas, the director, I said, George, I am not asking for close-ups, but do you think you could shoot me from the waist upwards from now on? And he said, 
why, and I explained the reason. So he said, oh, all right, and he gave me a pair of carpet slippers. So for the rest of the film, I stomped around, looking extremely angry and very cross with that dear little Carrie Fisher as old grandma starting carpet slippers. Carpet slippers. <laughs> I just, I don't know if you heard the tape measure crinkling. I measured the length of my foot. I'm six one. He was six foot in his uh, younger days. Um, my foot is ten and a half inches long. I wear a size twelve. He was an inch shorter than me, and his feet were an inch and a half longer than mine. Wow, that's crazy. I, I'm a, I'm six, I'm six two and a half, and I'm a size twelve as well. Hey. Um, although I will go to a thirteen just for comfort's sake sometimes. So, um, but yeah. All, all I can say is that maybe that's why his marriage lasted lasted so long. Oh, oh. Michelle. Oh. <laughs> Well, well, well. I am hard. <laughs> Damn hard. Oh wait. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I have I I absolutely applaud it when the ladies' minds go into the gutter. What? There you go. <laughs> so yeah. Oh, so uh, apparently, um, those scenes where you see Grand Moff Tarkin, uh, yeah, he's walking around in slippers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how. Uh, Carrie Fisher kept a straight face when he's up in there, up in her face, getting like you for a military target then, you know, and then she's like, you know, looking down and like, okay, yeah, yeah. What if he had bunny slippers, bunny slippers and be even better? I'm sure there yeah. were yeah, little bunny slippers. <laughs> so, um, yeah, apparently Grand Moff, yeah, he, he, he was involved with uh, the, the planet Dak, which is the, where the Mon Calamari are from. And, okay. uh, Thing, yeah, that's where he was with Darth Vader there, and things got screwed up. So Darth Vader's down there kicking ass as he's supposed to, and you know Grant Tarkin's up in the space and bombarding as he's supposed to. So it, it that that uh, uh, that part of it just just continues throughout. Pretty much, you know, uh, he meets Palpatine, who takes him under mm -hmm. his wing. He gets tested. Dooku, I'll just mention this about Dooku. So in, uh, Darth Sidious sends. Dooku to go and try and woo Tarkin away from the Empire to join the Separatists. What Darth Sidious was doing was testing Tarkin's loyalty. Tarkin mm. stayed with the, with the Republic or the Empire, so his loyalty, you know, he did not he did not go with Dooku, so yeah. So, um, the well. Oh, and, and oh, you okay. and you're Go gonna. You, I said, and next week you're gonna actually talk. Uh, you're gonna dedicate a segment to Count Dooku because there's uh, like so much to be I, said. I was I was doing some research, and what I when I started coming across this stuff on Dooku, I'm like, oh crap, this deserves yeah. its own segment. Dooku and, is worthy of his own segment. And it's cool that you mentioned that there actually is a connection between Tarkin and Dooku because that's Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Uh, and well that's uh, the characters yeah they never yeah, yeah i know yeah it, so so but i'm just i'm just saying though because i have a, a little interview clip i think from 2006 here uh with uh, a, an interviewer mentioning that very thing that this technically was sort of like almost their last collaboration uh in a roundabout way so uh here's this it's just a minute long has it ever occurred to you that in years to come when people watch the star wars films back to back Star Wars may be perceived as your final collaboration with him in a strange way. Well, in a way, although we're not in the same film. Mm. 
and Lucas in his introduction to your book on me, the authorised screen history, did something that he's never done before, to the best of my knowledge. He's never written an introduction to a book about an actor. But he does mention, if my memory serves me correctly, that he'd used Peter Cushing and then he felt that it was inevitable that he would use me. Mm. Although there was 77, was it? To, what was it? 2000. So that's 23 year gap. I think he wanted to fill that gap. Well, I think we're all very glad he did. Mm. Christopher Lee, thank you very much. So I think that's, that's kind of cool. I've always had that thought in the back of my head that, you know, the, that I was like, it was nice that he, he brought in, brought him in. Um, obviously I think George Lucas must've been a, he was a fan of a lot of British actors. No doubt. No doubt. Um, you know, so, yeah. So, um, Tarkin, um, I will make one other mention and that is apparently he was also involved with clone force 99. So those, some of uh, that may not ring a bell for anybody, mm-hmm. but there is right now a series coming out called the bad batch. And that is about clone force 99. So apparently there's Canon about how Tarkin, uh, tested, uh, Clone Force yeah. 99 and testing their loyalty, sending them on missions, blah, blah, blah. I don't know if uh, the series has Tarkin in it. It's possible. The, yeah, the Clone so Wars series. Spoilers. I'm not going to do any spoilers yeah. because, yeah, the, the, the series is coming out and I intend to watch it. So, uh, but I'm not going to mention any, any more of that. But it is, yeah. it, it, he, it, it, in canon, he is uh, it, it mentioned with it. So, all right. But next week, uh, yeah, Dooku uh, coming up. That guy, that, that character deserves a deep dive. Uh, it's right. wor- absolutely worthy of it. And uh, so that, that's my uh, self appointed homework assignment for next week. All right. Well, on that note, we are going to have to go to the break. And don't worry, Michelle, you will have more than enough time because I'm just going to present my leftovers to everybody at the very end of the show so uh, we can run as long as we want next segment to make sure we get through uh, all your clips and uh, discussion about the house. The house of tall shadows? The house of... Uh, the House of the Long Shadows. The House of the Long Shadows. I'm sorry. I got it wrong. So there we go. But I'm having a blast. We're going to have another great hour here. And uh, hang tight. Lots more. It came from Cleveland right after this. I think I'll have me a little drinky winky. Going to be a good night. It came from Cleveland, Ohio. Horrors of fearsome mutated beasts back from the dead, kept alive by experimental science. Science runs amok when human beings tamper with unknown forces. Get the power! Now at last, the real shocking story can be told. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. A nightmare combination of shock and terror, and you're invited. Finish unto you.
something evil. They were both grand masters of their art and, more important, as human beings. Not recommended for impressionable children. It seemed like too nice of a clip to put in there. <laughs> Think that one through. Of course, that was Christopher Lee remarking on uh, Vincent Price and Peter Cushing, two of his closest friends, which uh, is just really remarkable. And that's uh, what, you know, uh, there's a reason why they were friends, because they did a lot of stuff together. <laughs> and they Joe, respected that- one another. Yeah, yeah, but Joe just posted something in chat <laughs> showing Grandma Clark in, in a bunny suit from the... Oh, there you go. Thank you, Joe. Joe's <laughs> Photoshop magic. So, uh, perfect. Uh, so, uh, anyway, welcome back. Joe, our, our resident wizard. I'll have to add that to our uh, tiled uh, show art tonight. And uh, <laughs> was, send, send that to me on Facebook. Nightmare. Yeah, send that to me on Facebook. That'll that'll be good. And uh, of course, uh, welcome back to to Miles. Thank you for uh, some poignant history and a little Star Wars uh, trivia there. Uh, that was very cool. Yep, yep. And Michelle, we are about to get into uh, the uh, the the. Um, hang on, let me let me get the make sure I've got my folder open. Uh, House of the Long Shadows. Um, and did you send me the trailer for that? Yes, I did. Okay. It should have been with my, uh, uh, with my sound clips. Yeah. I don't, uh, you know what? I think I'm an idiot and I didn't download it properly, but don't worry. I, I will, uh, um, let me see. I think did I put that in my trailers. Sorry. I, I've got so much audio here. I'm, I'm a buffoon. Um, but, uh, I will do the next best thing and I will, uh, grab the audio from uh, YouTube right now for everybody. So, um, and uh, no, I don't want to try YouTube premium, but Michelle set it up. Uh, tell us a little bit about this uh, movie and I'll uh, get the um, trailer. Okay. The House of Long Shadows is um, the 24th and final film in which uh, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing's appeared together. Um, it's also the only film in which veteran horror stars, Vincent Price Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing's, and John Carradine all appear. And it's one of only two movies that Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, and Peter Cushing's were in together. So this is the perfect movie for tonight. Definitely. And here we go. Uh, Via my iPhone, but... uh... somewhere I can have total isolation and above all, atmosphere. What lives in this house? No one would want to live in Balpatur Manor. What stalks these halls? It's a cursed place. Yes, I saw the movie. What hides in these shadows? And who is playing that piano? Welcome to the house of the long shadows. Home of mystery. Suspense. Now the four masters of horror are moving in Vincent Price. We came here this evening to unlock the final door to our destiny. Christopher Lee. It would seem, Mr. McGee, that we are imprisoned here. Peter Cushing. It's all I have ever known. Fear. John Carradine. 
Death is our only true destiny. Joined by Desi Arnaz. What? You ain't seen nothing yet. House of the Long Shadows. You could lose your life. Worse, will this talented young man wager his very life for one night with this girl and these strange bedfellows? House of the Long Shadows. There's one missing. What is it? It's a diabolical secret. And suddenly, out he jumped. He didn't even look human. Which key unlocks the horrible truth? I'm afraid it has begun. And who spiked the punch? <laughs> House of the Long Shadows. It's delightfully puzzling. It would appear that you are creating a mystery where there is none. And a frightfully good time. You must have heard us singing. House of the Long Shadows. The murderously funny mystery with a twist. Yes, I see what you mean. House of the Long Shadows. Vincent Price, that's me. Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, John Carradine, and Desi Arnaz. In a Golan Globus production of a Pete Walker film. House of the Long Shadows. Canon releasing. There we go. Uh, Desi Arnaz Jr., thank you. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I'm, I'm actually glad I got to watch the trailer uh, while I was playing it, so that was fun. Uh, but, uh, all right, um, uh, let's, let's uh, go to town. This does look like a, a great film. I did not get to watch it yet. I do believe I've seen it, um, but it was it's one of those things that, where I probably rented it in the 80s. And, uh, you know, it's just a haze from my uh, teenage years, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. I remember seeing it on HBO. Um, it was on HBO, and that's where I first saw it. And um, it's one of those movies that, you know, it doesn't look like much. I mean, Desi Arnaz Jr., he doesn't ring many bells with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But um, basically, he plays an author. And he's talking with his uh, editor and they're trying to, you know, trying to get him to try something new when he's writing. And and Desi Arnaz is pretty jaded. He's not uh, the type that that believes that, you know, the human condition is really worth writing about, that people's emotions, you know, they're for for the most part, people's emotions are, you know, just for play. And they're not they don't really mean half the things they say and stuff. And so him and his um and, they, you know, his editor and him start talking about old gothic stuff and how, you know, Desi Arnaz thinks that stuff is sort of cheesy because, you know, that stuff really doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen in real life. So they make a bet. Desi Arnaz uh, basically, you know, tells the editor, okay, look, I can come up with an American gothic, I mean, I can come up with a gothic style novel within 24 mm -hmm. hours. I just need a place where I can do it. The editor says, fine, I know exactly the place you can do it. I have a friend that has this manor house out in Wales. Um, he, you know, it, it, nobody's there. You can sequester yourself there for 24 hours. Then you have to be back here by such and such time to deliver the novel and, you know, you know, and, and, and so forth. And Disney says, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. So he goes out to this manor house and it hits all the tropes almost right away. A thunderstorm moves in. He, <laughs> he, he stops off at a train station to get directions. 
and people, you know, he, 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 he and you know, the, 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 the guy at the train station's like, you know, dude, you know, I mean, the guy at the train station's like, you don't want to go there. That, that place is bad. You know, the land is cursed and all that sort of thing. You know, the standard tropes and stuff like that. He meets a couple there that's at the, the train station. They're, they're a, an American couple or, I mean, they're a London couple that was out there doing a walkabout type, uh, you know, backpacking thing. Mm-hmm. So he eventually drives out to the house. He gets out of the house, finds a, a a bedroom, starts setting his stuff up. Then he realizes there's no dust in this bedroom. He pulls back the sheets. The sheets are in perfect condition. And so, you know, he starts looking around. And he comes back down the stairs. He's, you know, he starts looking around. And all of a sudden, he runs into John Carradine. All right. Here we go. What are you doing here? What? I... I asked you a question, sir. What? Who are you? What is your business here? Listen, I, uh... Speak up, sir. Speak up. Who are you? Now, hold on a minute. Like, who the hell are you? Housekeepers, young sir. We're the caretakers of the manor. Victoria Quimby, at your service, sir. And my father, Elijah Quimby. We're the caretakers, sir. It's our right to be here. And you, sir? All right. <laughs> yeah, so he's completely shocked at this point. And then, to make matters worse, somebody else shows up. This is a, wo- a woman in a mask, and he tussles with her a little bit. Finds out that she's actually the bl- a blonde he saw back in town when he was talking to his editor. And she comes up with this crazy story that there are... Uh, international assassins in the area, and he's in deadly danger, and he doesn't believe a thing she's saying. Okay. <laughs> and so, you, you know, and he's like, um, and then she, he's like, well, the caretakers are here, and she's like, okay, and then she realizes there's not supposed to be caretakers there. She tries to make a phone call, and um, somebody else arrives at that uh, a little bit after the phone call is made and interrupted. Who are and you? that would be Peter Cush- you must forgive my intrusion. Allow me to introduce myself. Sebastian Rand. I was um, driving through this fearsome storm when my automobile fell into a state of disrepair. And seeing your welcome lights in the darkness, I thought to presume upon your hospitality and seek shelter until the morning. Punch? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Punch? <laughs> yeah, she she fost, she tries to push that punch on everybody that comes. You know, it's like I made hot punch. Would you like some? Who spiked <laughs> like, the punch? And, yeah. So, um, yeah. So the, you know, he's like he talked, and and at this point, Desi Arnaz Jr. is starting to get a little miffed. I mean, he came up here for a quiet, atmospheric place to write a story, and so far, he hasn't gotten jacked on yet. Yeah. So and you know then they're 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 they're, they're they walk out of the dining room uh, the dining room where the punch is being served, and they go back into the main hallway and and he's talking to her and she's freaking out, and then all of a sudden the door opens, a shadow appears in the hallway, and then. <laughs> <laughs> we know he that gets voice. the most dramatic. 
Yes? Uh, I said, we know that voice. Oh, yeah. Such a dramatic um, entrance. But it gets better. Who might you be? I was about to ask the same of you. Decay. Now there's nothing but the stench of decay. Time has such little respect for man's vanity. Such little regard for his possessions. Listen, I... Please don't interrupt me whilst I am soliloquizing. <laughs> Where is the music now? The sound of laughter. <laughs> there was never laughter. Yeah, he gets the best lines in this movie. He really, really does. <laughs> and you notice, through all of that, he still has not introduced himself. But that comes next. Here we go. I am Lionel Grisbane, eldest son to Lord Grisbane. This was my home until the dust claimed it. This room once sparkled with light and laughter. But it's so empty now, so desolate. What dust? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Actually, most of the house seems pretty darn clean, except for yeah. like the underground passages and things like that. So oh, sure. we have, yeah, so we have Peter Cushing's character. We have Vincent Price's character. Um, and then um, comes yet the last character after all. Who the devil are you and what are you doing here? That's getting to be the leading question of the evening. This happens to be private property, and you happen to be trespassing. Now, I don't know how you managed to break in here. That... Where did you get that? My publisher. He got it from the trustees. Do you know Sir Richard Thornton? Yes, I do. Oh, good. Well, he's the guy who fixed it so I could come here to work. I'm a writer. Oh. My name's Kenneth McGee, and this is Miss Norton. Miss Norton? Mr. McGee, my name's Corrigan. And might I ask what brings you here, Mr. Corrigan? I'm about to purchase the property, Mr. McGee. I was driving past and I saw the lights in the windows, so naturally I wondered what was going on. Hmm. Yeah, so he's, you know, he's all prim and proper, tall, dressed in a great suit, you know, just, you know, and, and, and he's, he plays the indignant man very well i mean he's very annoyed these people who are you know basically congesting up his property he had no idea it was going to be there so um then they all move to the dining room where the conversation restarts allow me to introduce you mr corrigan this is lord grisbane lord grisbane his sons lionel and sebastian this really is most embarrassing. And his charming daughter, Victoria. How did you find out? The portrait's in the hall. Would somebody be good enough to tell me just exactly what is going on, please? A family reunion, sir. I would have thought that was obvious. But may I offer you some punch, Mr. Parker? <laughs> it's for my own recipe. This is incredible. You have all of you come here after all these years to this empty house for a family reunion. Do you find that so difficult to understand, Mr. Corrigan? I find it a little bizarre under the circumstances. 
And it doesn't alter the fact that none of you has the slightest right to be here. Right? 300 years is our right. For 300 years, the Grisbanes have dominated and held sway here. History holds no sway with the present, Mr. Grisbane. Particularly in view of the fact that I intend to tear this house down and sell off the land for industrial development. Tear it down? No. Father. Oh, no. There's a... Drama sting. Yeah, so basically hijinks ensue. People start dropping off like flies. You find out that this that this family has a very dark history. Um, I don't really want to go into too much detail in case somebody ends up wanting to watch it and stuff like that. It is available for purchase and I think possibly rental as well on Amazon Prime. I know okay. I bought it there a while back because I've had this in my collection forever. And I yeah. love this movie to death. But there is one final clip I have just because it is so amazing. So picture all these characters and they're talking to each other as if they're at an after party. Just listen to this clip. It's amazing. Congratulations, Bernard. What a fall. All the way down the stairs. <laughs> Wonderful. But then you always were good at falling from a great height. I'll compare, my dear Jeffrey, with your famous death scenes, which you have played so brilliantly over so many years, bitch. Love the pathos, Humphrey. Loved it, darling. I can see now why you were always known as the Waterworks. Some called me the Big Drip. <laughs> well, she was splendid, my dear. Oh, the Big Drip. <laughs> my, my favorite part of that clip is just Vincent Price going, bitch. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's pretty funny so no i mean yes. this this movie just uh just reeks of fun it is and it's not truly horrific yeah there are some scenes in there that that are a bit strong but with the comedy and the interaction it's i think somebody i think a person would find something to like about it no matter what their tastes mm -hmm. are you know because it's got movie classics i mean if you like gothic stuff it's got the gothic qualities um it's got the great interactions with the characters it's got the cute little you know bet going on and it's got a twist at the end like vincent yeah. price said in the trailer but i would call it a double twist Oh. So yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun. Um, basically, a couple more characters will show up. The the two the couple from the train station show up, mm -hmm. and and that's when stuff really starts to happen because you've learned the history of the family. Now you know why they're all here and why they all seem to be just so uncomfortable with anybody else being around. Yeah, and yeah, and, and you know you know. John Carradine, too. I mean, there's some more horror chops for you. So John Carradine. Horror... Yes. <laughs> He's about He's the only one of these guys I can almost do an, do an impression of him. You know, that you can do that throaty thing. So Yeah, he's got um, that gravelly voice. Yeah. Yes. So, and my voice is getting gravelier and gravelier, gravelier as I get older. So. Uh, yeah, and uh, a little bit of trivia about this movie. Um. The actors are all older at, older at this point when they make this movie, which is kind of um, funny. And John Carradine actually falls asleep during the dinner scene. 
and is in the land of Nod for most of the scene. He's just zonked out. <laughs> wow. They just left it? Yeah, they just let it, let it go. Because, you know, he, he didn't have any lines at the moment, so... <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. That's amazing. Yeah, and and as we all know, um, Vincent Price and Christopher Lee were born on uh, May twenty seventh. Mm-hmm. Um, Vincent Price was born in nineteen eleven, and Christopher Lee in nineteen twenty two, and um, which is funny. Uh, and and Peter Cushing's missed it by only one day, as he was born on the twenty sixth of yeah. nineteen thirteen. So, and that I is why we're paying tribute to them yeah. tonight. I so loved being able to play that This Is Your Life where, uh, uh, you know, at the beginning of the show where Vincent Price actually says he shares a birthday with, uh, you know, because that's so in our wheelhouse, you know. Um, you know, he says that he shares a birthday with uh, Christopher Lee, so. Yes, yes, that's yes. Cool. And what what um, um, funny thing about this script is that uh, Vincent Price was offered this movie and he accepted it even before the script was written. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I guess he liked the idea of it so much that, uh, yeah, he, he, he just was. It was actually um, it was actually written, uh, it was uh, adapted from a play that was called Seven Keys to Baldpate um, by okay. George M. Cohen. And it was, uh, that, that play was actually done 70, it was created 70 years before the movie was re- re- released. Oh, wow. So. Wow, that is very cool. So, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and of course, can anybody guess who's who was the cast and crew's favorite actor on the set? Um, I'm gonna say maybe the fine co- the fine chef. Nope. No. Believe it or not, everybody lo- every, most you know they all liked uh, everybody on the crew, but their favorite actor was Peter Cushing. He oh, was just well, such joy to work with. He is uh, the interviews I've seen with him. He just seems like he was just a very pleasant, happy, and delightful individual. And though, and I don't have it, I don't believe, but there was a there was an interview that I I, I sifted through so much interview stuff for this, and there was one where um, Christopher Lee, you just saw his eyes light up when he was talking about Peter Cushing and the letters he would uh, write to him, you know, and he would say, you know, my dear boy or my dear, uh, dear fellow, when he would uh, uh, write him in these letters. And, um, you know, he would always sign with, with love from his wife and him and, you know, and God bless you. And just, just an absolute pleasant guy. Um, And uh, lived a very humble little life, you know, uh, rode his bicycle, you know, went went to the market on his bicycle until he couldn't anymore. Um, and Christopher Lee was utterly heartbroken. The, the, I think the picture you shared was a picture that he mentioned um, one of the one of the last pictures of them together in the doorway. Yes. Um, he said that it, that picture breaks his heart because um, his head barely came up to his shoulder, uh, Peter Cushing's head barely came up to his shoulder. And Peter Cushing used to be six feet tall, as we mentioned before. Yeah. Yeah. He had, he had gotten really bent by his, the age and his infirmity, infirmary. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, yeah, but it, it was, it's, it's one of the last published pictures of, 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 of Peter Cushing. So that's yeah. why I, I posted it. Um, 
one other bit of trivia that I'll, cl I'll close things on with is although Peter Cushing's has killed Christopher Lee in six films, mm -hmm. he killed him in Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, The Skull, I Monster, Dracula AD 1972, oh, and The Satanic Rites of Dracula. This is the only film in which Lee kills Peter Cushing. Oh, finally, huh? <laughs> yep. Don't tell us how. So. No, I will not. All right. Well, Michelle, would you like to uh, tell everybody what we're going to hear in our trailer break coming up? Okay, yes, we have three uh, movie trailers, and as I st stated uh, at the beginning of the show, these three trailers all have something in common. They all uh, either have, one of them has Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in it, and that would be um, uh, The Curse of Frankenstein. Yeah. One of them will have Vincent Price and Christopher Lee, and that would be The Oblong Box, which, which is a Poe story. Yes. And the third one is Scream and Scream Again, and that has all three of them in it. Oh, very good. Cannot wait. So here we go. We'll be right back. And I'll, I'll play my leftovers for everybody. Nothing like these kinds of leftovers, though. It's not like leftover pizza planet. you fully understand your life will have to wind down a very different road I want to know how long ago did she die she has never really existed yet you see she's been assembled piece by piece organ by organ she's a composite like Keith Keith Yes, you remember the so-called vampire killer. You don't have to hurt me. She wasn't just murdered, if you uh, know what I mean. tensile steel. He didn't, eh? Look. More than a hundred years ago, in a mountain village in Switzerland, 
lived a man whose strange experiments with the dead have since become a legend. A legend that is still told with horror the world over. We've only just started, just opened the door. Look, now's the time to go through that door and find what lies beyond it. But don't you see, Paul? We've discovered the source of life itself and we've used it to restore a creature that was dead. This is Frankenstein, who revolted against nature, who experimented with the devil and was forever cursed. His unwilling collaborator was Paul Kremp. I can't prove you murdered, but I can stop you using his brain. Why? He has no further use for it? Don't be a Be careful! Go damn it! Only two women ever entered this house of evil. Elizabeth, come back! Elizabeth, the lovely cousin who had promised to marry him, and Justine, the maid, who kept passionate and secret rendezvous with her master. Won't you understand you're in real danger? What Victor is doing is dangerous to everyone in the house. Now, you cannot possibly conceive what dreadful thing he's planning to do. What are you trying to tell me, Paul? That Victor's wicked? Insane? Wicked? Insane? Evil? Call Frankenstein what you will. A demon had made a man-made monster. And now, the monster was the master. Paul, what are you going to do? For your sake and to protect Elizabeth, I've so far kept silent. But now I shall go to the authorities and have them destroy that creature. And see that you pay for these atrocities. No! died. When is he going to be buried? As soon as you found another body. Do you realize the penalty for body snatching is hanging? You're a forger and an embezzler, and now you're going to become a body snatcher. To assist you in your experiment. horrible oblong box, no air to breathe, every shovelful raining down on the lid. My God, Trench, do you know what that means? It means that my brother was buried alive.
Poe buddies nerfed. Uh, yeah, with this show and the amount of clips and uh, different things that I do on a weekly basis, um, this is like the second major screw-up I've done. I did the, the wrong rock block the other week, uh, you know, and um, I'll get better. It's only episode... What Not is a this? problem. Epis episode 9? So I think we're doing okay. Yeah, so, we did good. I was yeah. I was able to 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 read out the the names of the thing and tell them it was all the Bill Black Paxton block from last week. It was, yeah. it was all good. So <laughs> they got uh, to listen to those again. I'll clean it up in a podcast too. So, uh, but anyway, welcome back, uh, uh, Miles, Joe, Michelle. Um, I I got some uh, fun leftovers for everybody that, that we didn't get to uh, get to um, uh, in the first. Uh, hour of the show and um this one is this one is from um peter cushing i have a little bit uh from everybody um this one is from uh, 1986 on the wogan show some bbc show i don't um i'm not familiar with the chap who does that show but uh this is a fun little uh uh bit of interview uh uh, from Peter Cushing from 1986. Well, it's midnight to dig you up, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> Over Christopher Lee's body. Exactly. <laughs> oh, Christopher. He eschews the old horror now. He says, I go. Oh, he says, I didn't actually make that many horror films, you know. <laughs> but you're, you're, quite you're quite pleased with the doing Oh, delighted, yes. Got my fangs at him or No, the other way around. No, no, I think the trouble with dear old Chris, you see, as he said, in the end, playing Dracula, he was just left sort of snarling in corners, showing his teeth, whereas the part I played of Van Helsing was at least leaping about the place and trying to think of different ways to bump him off. give <laughs> <laughs> a little variety. It always ended with the stake to oh, the yes, heart. Yes, oh, yes, always, yes. Blood yeah, everywhere. Uh, yes, uh, uh, a rare stake, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you never got bored. With all those mad professors and and, and Frankers, you did. No, 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 no. I loved them. I, no, I tell you the the, the great uh, pleasure I think any any actor gets, and I, I do mean like, the reception like that is most touching at any time of your life. But an actor's uh, uh, raison d'être, I say French. Raison I think it means the reason why. We'll spell that for you later. Yes, and for me too. Um, <laughs> Is to entertain people, and those films certainly have done they that, did. and still do today. Because you know, some of them. Am I talking too much? Not at all. This you're the very kind of person that I want to have on this show. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Far too often I get exactly. people who don't talk at all. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, um, um, some of them. It took nearly all of them 25 years ago, and an audience today are seeing them who weren't born then. You see. And they see they thought they were made last week or last month or something, and they see this rather elderly gentleman. Um, thank yes. you. Well, he's not, he's not wearing the frock and the ringlets tonight. <laughs> Creeping about, and uh, <laughs> in fact, I heard someone say, yeah, see that bloke over there? It's Peter Cushing. She don't be daft, it's his dad. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Don't be daft, it's his dad. <laughs> That is some funny stuff there. Again, just you know, it, it that really says a lot when when you hear interviews with actors. When when somebody uh, can can be so casually self-deprecating, 
uh, like he has shown and Vincent Price has shown in his interviews and, and Christopher Lee has too. Uh, Christopher Lee, not as much. Um, uh, but uh, I, I'm sure it's out there, you know. Um, but it, that tells a lot about the character of an individual. It really does. So, and, um, and, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, feel free, anybody, if, if you have any thoughts, I do have a, a nice one from, uh, Christopher Lee on, uh, Peter Cushing and Vincent Price that I want to play for everybody after that, but feel free if you want to uh, chime in about that. I mean, I mean, Joe, that's a pretty, pretty solid little joke. About, you know, don't be daft, it's his dad. <laughs> yes. So. Oh, I just I was just looking at a comparison between a very young Peter Cushing's and Tom Hiddleston, and Tom Hiddleston would oh, make a great oh, Peter I, Cushing if they I, ever you did. You know, the, yeah. exactly, exactly. I thought the same thing today when I was watching the fight scene um, from uh, one of the drag. I think the first Dracula movie uh, that where he played Van Helsing. Um, it's the one where he, you know, holds the candlesticks up as a cross or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I saw that and I was like, holy crap. And then I was like, okay, Tom Hiddleston for Peter Cushing. Who do we get for Christopher Lee and Vincent Price? <laughs> so, that was going to be a little more difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe, hmm. <sighs> No, I was thinking Michael Fassbender for uh, Christopher Lee, but no, I don't think so. But uh, but yeah. So anyway, unless anybody has anything else to add, I'll uh, go ahead and play next clip. I'll play the next clip then. I'm good. Acting yeah. is not <laughs> just about dreams. Acting is also about memories. Memories of the films you've been in. Memories of the characters you've played. And I have many very happy memories of films that I've been in and of characters that I have played. But far more important to me is the memory not just of the films that I was in or the characters that I played, but the memory of two particular people. Not just professional colleagues and not just close personal friends. Far more than that. And here is the first. I don't know what one of us had said to the other. It's a picture of him and Peter Cushing. Probably We'd been doing Yosemite Sam or Sylvester the Cat or something like that because we both loved those films. But this was on the set of The Gorgon in 1965. I obviously, as you can see, wasn't dressed for the scene. Peter, I don't even have to add his second name. Peter was, as you can see, dressed for the scene. This picture is of the other. And I don't think I have to give his second name either. Just simply Vincent. Picture of them playing chess. 
this was, I think, the first film we ever made together. I'm sort of half-dressed, and I'm not quite sure, again, what I said or what he said, but it was anything to do with the game of chess. I certainly said that I knew absolutely nothing about the game, and Vincent, of course, who knew everything about everything, was probably <laughs> a grandmaster. Wouldn't have surprised me. They were both grandmasters of their art and, more important, as human beings. Wonderful people, wonderful actors, and very, very dear friends, and I miss them very, very much. That is that is kind of heartbreaking to think that, you know, he, he outlived the two of them by so long. I'm glad he had a long life, don't get me wrong, but it's it's just sad that, you know, the you know, there were there was a considerable age difference uh with uh because he, he was he was definitely uh, much younger than both Vincent Price and um or what, what was the, what was the age difference between him and what year was Christopher Lee born? Um, Christopher Lee was born eleven years after Vincent Price. Okay, and what he was, was born in nineteen twenty-two. Uh, Vincent Price was nineteen eleven. And what about uh, uh, Peter Cushing? I forget his, but he was pretty old too. Yeah. So so yeah, hearing that that was you know that was just sad and, and touching um, and. Uh, you know, and and it makes you think. You know, I, I mean, uh, how do the you know, uh, you know, it makes you think about your own friendships and everything, and you know what you uh, want from them, and you know. Nineteen thirteen. Uh, okay, so he was about the same age then as uh, Vincent Price, right? Right, he was two years younger. Yes. Okay. All right. So, um, all right. Well, yeah. I mean, that but. Yeah, go ahead. That interview part just made me cry. It, it brought tears to my eyes just hearing him. He's speaking such love in such loving and glowing terms of both of them, and yeah. you know both of them are great people. And, they and he all just he just did that. Yeah, they all did that. It, it just you know they joked about one another. They cared for one another, and you know it was um um you know in in what um. I, I uh, saw something today too about when uh, Victoria Price came out to her father um, when you know as being a lesbian. Um, he said he totally understood because there were so many men in his life that he loved, and he could you know could totally understand you know that he, he you know he could have fallen in love with uh, a man and you know so he probably was gender fluid. Yeah, and, and he took that stance early um too and he and did. he could have been blacklisted for it. Oh, he did. And he was uh he was actually a spokesperson for um uh, an early uh, I forget the name of the organization organization but an early LGBT uh group and uh was one of the first uh actors to come out uh to destigmatize AIDS publicly. He's so, a wonderful man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the things he did, and, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, I think what Vincent Price did later in his life um, was he tried to make up for being misguided uh, by following what his father believed. 
because his father actually was like a, a big fan of Hitler before World War II. Yeah. And um, and he he never admitted it, but uh, Vincent Price uh, at one point um, was a, a supporter of what was going on. I think in the Weimar Republic or whatever. And and then uh, when he saw how things went, he was like, "Oh God, what have I been thinking? What have I been doing?" And changed. And that is a true you know true path of redemption. You know, so. Um, but, uh, the last thing I have for everybody is a little treat and this will take us right up to the top. This is, uh, something from, uh, one of the records that he did, excuse me, uh, hiccup and, uh, and let me find out the exact one, uh, because I saw this and I was like, this is too fun of a title of a story. And I listened to it and it was, it was a very, very fun story. And uh, this is from um, the, uh, no, it's not from that one. It's from the other one. Tales of, uh, yeah, Tales of Witches, Ghosts, and Goblins from 1972. This is called, you're going to love this, The Phantom Merry-Go-Round. <laughs> Here we go. The Phantom Merry-Go-Round. Among the pirate islands at the outer edge of Barataria Bay, the westernmost is Ile Dernier, now generally known as Last Island. For a little while, it was the capital of the illegitimate empire of Jean Lafitte, the famous buccaneer who later moved to Grand Terre and became a picturesque hero at the Battle of New Orleans. Not long after the pirates had scattered, Last Island became a summer resort. Some of the most distinguished of New Orleans' Creole families built luxurious cottages there. An enterprising merchant erected an elaborate hotel called the Trade Wind, which was decorated by many towers and bordered by pillared galleries. A whole wing of this long and spacious building was devoted to a ballroom, where an orchestra played nightly, and all the families from the cottages joined the hotel guests to dance the hours of darkness away. The season was at its height at the beginning of August in 1856. The summer residents congratulated each other that their island was cool, while the heat of New Orleans was almost intolerable. A strong north wind was blowing, and high waves raced in from the Gulf of Mexico to break in thundering surf upon the sand. Each day was bright and clear. On the ninth of the month came the first ominous evidences of possible disaster. Great dark clouds towered on the horizon, and the wind brought with it a roaring sound. Darkness came early that afternoon, and the sound increased. The islanders gathered at the ballroom, glad to divert themselves by dancing and forgetting the fears that stirred in their minds. Nervously, the ladies in their formal gowns looked out of the windows at the advancing waves, but soon the music and the gay rhythms of the dance captured their complete attention. When the gaiety was at its height, came a piercing scream, 
A girl had seen water spurt under the door of the ballroom and darken the shining floor. As some of the gentlemen raced toward the door, it burst from its hinges, and a resistless wave swept through the room. The struggling dancers heard a terrific crash, and the roof of the ballroom had blown away. Wave after wave followed, and the helpless humans, screaming and panic-stricken, were scattered by the seething waters. Those who fought their way out of the hotel saw whole cottages swept away from their foundations and bobbing crazily about. A small steamboat, the Star, had been snatched from her moorings and was blown up upon the island. It filled with water and sank on the site of a billiard parlor which had disappeared. A few of the victims of the storm fought their way to her hull and clung there throughout the night. Not far from the hotel stood a children's whirligig or merry-go-round. A group of men and women had fought their way to it, and they clung to the wooden rail above their heads. The wind increased its force and set the rail to circling. The terrified passengers kept desperate hold, their bodies hanging grotesquely as the rail went round. When the waters receded next morning, about two-thirds of the people on the island had lost their lives. Many were never found. But here and there on the wet sands lay corpses in odd, stiff attitudes. Almost a century has passed since this great tragedy, but the fishermen of Barataria Bay say that even today, when chugging past Last Island in their little boats, Sometimes on blowy nights, they see on its shores a vast hotel, its windows gleaming with light, and they hear dance music above the whistle of the wind. Sometimes, too, a boat crew reports that they have beheld by the light of the windows dark shadows moving slowly in circular parade, like human bodies riding a gruesome merry-go-round. Ooh, spooky. Good way to end. Uh, but yeah, so uh, there, you know, I just, you know, again, uh, like Joe said, he could read something out of a, a page out of a phone book and it would be, uh, you know, you'd shut up and listen. But uh, anyway, well, I'll tell you what, that's uh, that's our show. Uh, for tonight. Uh, sorry, we didn't have a Twilight Zone, but there was no uh, corresponding episode for tonight, and it just happened uh, to fit in perfectly to play Christopher Lee's first television appearance of all time, and Joe, our resident One Step Beyond aficionado, picked the Sorcerer for us, so that was great. Uh, yeah, anybody have anything else to add before we uh, wrap things up? Um, all no. I know is all I know is that um, Vincent Price, Chris Ridley, Peter Cushing's um, gone from this world, but not forgotten. They will be in our minds and in our dreams forever. And um, I also posted that little quick Johnny Carson clip of Vincent Price cooking fish in a dishwasher. Ah, the fish so, washer. <laughs> I'll just give an honorable mention to Andre the Giant. Ah, yeah, that's right. And I'll give one to uh, Lee Merriweather of Barnaby Jones and Batman. Uh, she was one of the three bat uh, cat women on uh, 
Batman, next to Julie Newmar and Eartha Kitt. My third favorite. <laughs> I, I, I had posted a picture of uh, Vincent Price at Egghead earlier, so it kind of fits. <laughs> oh, see? There you go. There you go. So, another of Batman's uh, uh, rogues gallery. Um, and, uh, uh, Joe, anything you want to mention before we uh, wrap up? The Frozen Ghost on Spangooly. Night. Oh, tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. So, the yeah. Frozen I'm looking forward to it. Is that is that called a ghost dickle? <laughs> yes. Yes. Or a spook sickle? A ghost dickle. Yeah. Or a uh, uh, frozen gozer. Gogurt. Um, Gogurt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> frozen Gogurt. There you go. So, uh, all right. Well, everybody, I hope you enjoyed yourselves tonight. Uh, I certainly enjoyed uh, putting the show together and uh, all of your guys' contributions. Have a happy and safe weekend. Uh, keep it spooky. And we'll see everybody next week for another edition. Episode 10 of It Came From Cleveland. This is Vincent Price speaking from the Cleveland Museum of Art. Not far away is all the bustle of a modern American city. 